Hello and welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. And today I'm... we are joined by Mr. Joe Saunders. Sorry. <laughs> so I was going to jump in just to become part of the panel. Oh, yeah, no. Okay, so let's... Be a regular co-host. So, I'm Sue. I'm Greg. And I'm Joe. I'm there we go. Just jumping in to join in for the day. There you go. Brilliant. Another Joe. Another, Another Joe. Joe. Our, our world is full of Joes right now. It is, isn't it? You need it? a couple of spares. You <laughs> <laughs> know when your Joe's going to fail you and you're going to need a spare one. Exactly. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's that's it. And all the Joes we know are, are fantastic. Really nice people. Oh, you haven't met enough of them, then. There's some pretty dodgy <laughs> ones out there. <laughs> I'm sure they are. To be fair. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we last spoke to you, Joe, um, almost not quite a year ago. Yeah, and, back in uh, January. Yeah. Well, you were heading off to start doing a ton of tours, seminars. Um, some of them in the UK, absolutely everywhere. So um, why don't you catch us up on how some of those went? Because uh, particularly I know you were with Tommy Joe Moore. i got to ask about that one because uh, I saw some <laughs> of that one on Facebook and uh, and Mary. So tell us, catch us up on what you've been you've been doing. Yeah, wow. Um, so yeah, Ito put Tommy and me in a room. It's just sort of big, big gingers gone wild, uh, which is... Um, <laughs> There was actually probably probably more stories that I can't share about what happened outside of the seminars as opposed to uh, what happened at the seminars, but uh, no. So look, it had a, had a great had a, had a, it's been a huge year for me personally. Uh, obviously, had the Managing Violence podcast that um, I, I haven't avid listeners. If anyone anyone's jumping on this because you're you're a fan of the show, so where does the show coming back? The podcast is coming back. I haven't done much with it since uh, early in the year. Um, for reasons I'll elaborate on, but it is coming back in December. So there you got the late breaking news. It's coming back mid this month. So anyone who's wondering whether I've retired from podcasting, I haven't. Just took a break. Uh, but um, so yeah, came over to the UK, did uh, did three seminars and uh, a couple a couple of little guest spots uh, throughout the UK. Uh, popped over to Switzerland and did uh, a few days in Switzerland as well in Zurich. Uh, and uh, then uh, yeah, came back and uh, have, been, have been teaching throughout Australia, and uh, also did a little trip to the US. Not not doing martial arts teaching, but speaking at a major conference over in Atlanta. So it's been a, I've been taking advantage of being allowed to leave my country and uh, and, go, and go places, and remembering how far away Australia is from everything else, and how bloody long the flights are. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's it's pretty much the the nutshell. But I, I guess probably the the main thing I've been spending this year on, other than the the seminar tours. Uh, has been really expanding my violence prevention practice uh, in the in the corporate sphere here, and and looking more at um, all the holistic things about what we do, what we can do to prevent violence from happening, and and to control the risk of violence in in various settings, uh, as opposed to just being purely reactive and thinking about self defense as being something we do when the bad guys in front of us, but rather how do we create those environments where the bad people aren't aren't, or how do we stop people becoming bad people, or how do we not put ourselves in harm's way and, and all those kinds of bigger, more strategic questions. That's kind of what I've been focusing on this year uh, and uh, and doing a lot of work with my clients in that space and also started an MBA as well, just because I thought I had a few spare minutes. So I've been um, been back, back on the books and back studying again, which has uh, been a bit of fun as well. So it's been a very busy year. It has. What's your, uh, what's your MBA specifically in? Uh, so at the moment I'm still in the sort of general phase of my MBA. So uh, I think it's probably going to end up focusing on something to do with people because people's always been my 
my driver. I like understanding human behavior. So uh, it'll probably be something to do with organizational culture, I think, and initially when, when I eventually get to specialize. But at the moment, it's really just the nuts and bolts of of business administration right now. So uh, uh, none of the uh, none of the fancy stuff yet. Um, just understanding how to run a business and how to get paid to do it. Mm. So, yeah, that does sound really good. Um, so you were talking there about um, that you're expanding your practice right now. So um, one of the the kind of general questions that I was going to ask a bit later, um, but I'll I'll ask it now. Is that what have you learned that's different, if if anything, um, this year? Have you have you learned something new about your your world, about the work that you're doing? Yeah. Look, I I think probably. I'm not sure whether it's about learning things that are new because I, I think like, I, I learn things that are new all the time. And mm. uh, I think anyone who's serious about this, you really should be learning something new all the time. You should be reading new sources and new interesting blog articles and absorbing more content. And uh, you should be doing that no matter what your role is. Uh, so I, I try to do that. And I honestly, half the time I'll, I'll get to the end of something, not really realize I've learned something, but it might just trigger a different thought that takes me down a different rabbit hole. And that's that's kind of how... I can't really, I find it really hard to actually credit people for where I got ideas from because sometimes it might just be a, a comment that was made in a completely different context and in my head I've started applying it to self-defense or to martial arts or to, to violence prevention and, and then I've got now got a new idea but it wasn't really about that to begin with. So <laughs> it's probably a convoluted way of saying I don't give credit to people when they teach me things. Uh, but um, but uh, I think probably the, the thing that's been the biggest shift for me this year is just the continual expansion of um, the what ifs uh, uh, as opposed to like my, my journey started off very much the same as everybody else's that, get, that gets into martial arts. You, know, you, you start off worried about how do I block this punch? How do I deal with that kick? How do I escape that submission? Whatever it is, it's very much um, you know, you, you've got a challenge and you've got to solve it. Right? It's, it it's, it's problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. And then as you get a little bit more advanced, you start thinking about how do I not get caught in that in the first place, or how do I not be at that range, or how do I get out of range, how do, how do I hit and get retracted out of range, how do I become elusive and don't get counter-struck. Counter All those kinds of things start to become the next level up. Uh, and then you start to get to a point where you're like, well, how do I make my opponent do things that I want him to do without him realizing I'm making him do them? Right, so that we start manipulating our range, we start manipulating our movement, we start giving feints, we start doing things that will change the thinking of the other person. Uh, and that's kind of just, as you get more advanced in a, in a martial art, you become more strategic and you can play with people. You can have a bit of fun with people. And you start to experiment with people and see what they do. And I've kind of taken the same approach to uh, violence prevention and management where it's not no longer about, let's say I'm working with a client, uh, a corporate client. It's not just about training their people. I can train their people to do de-escalation or very rarely, but sometimes we'll do self-defense. Sometimes we'll do some physical self-defense. Um, but but usually it's de-escalation, a bit of security awareness is what they bring me in for. But then the, the the bigger question is, why are they having to use that? You know, why are they why are they in situations they have to de-escalate? What are the factors that the organization could perhaps control that would perhaps limit the amount of angry people that that their staff are dealing with? So it could be something as macro as policies. Like, I mean, if, you, if you're getting a lot of people being really angry and potentially violent about your refund policy in a retail store, then maybe we need to look at the policy. Okay? Or maybe we need to look at how the policy is administered, or maybe we need to find a way to communicate that when the person isn't face-to-face -face with our staff member who's going to wear all the abuse, for example. Or it might be the layout of the premises. It might be whether the, the, the actual layout of the store, if we're going to use retail as an example, 
maybe the layout of the store is confusing and bewildering and overwhelming because there's too many signs everywhere and it's not clear where the registers are and it's, it's no one's really sure where I go to get help and maybe the staff don't really make eye contact so therefore I don't feel like anyone's really interested in helping me so by the time I do find someone who wants to help me I'm already a little bit escalated so there's a whole bunch of things we can play with there that might actually be better than teaching that end staff member how to de-escalate the situation and then as we sort of backtrack from there okay well that's cool but what is it about the nature of our business? What is it about the clients we attract? What is it about um, you know, our value proposition to our clients? You know, the, the, the challenges in a high-end luxury retail store are completely different to the challenges at an Asda. Uh, so how do we manipulate that? <laughs> and how do we look at that from a, from a marketing angle? Like that, then, then that becomes kind of interesting as well and part of why I'm doing my MBA. Um, and then like, what's the culture of our organization? What happens when people report that someone was aggressive to them? Do they get support? Do they not get support? Okay. If they don't get support, what does that do to the culture of reporting? What does that do to the culture of whether people are going to have empathy for each other when their colleague is assaulted or their colleague is abused? If it's just being told oh, that's part of the job, just suck it up and move on, um, then you, you create this toxic culture. So there's all these different bits and pieces. And for me, I've just started to keep going wider and wider and wider to this idea that's sort of percolating in my head now, and it's probably 10 years away from being able to do anything with it. But it's like, if you could create a city from scratch that had zero violence, what would that city look like? Mm. And that, that's kind of like, that's that's the level I'm sort of trying to force my brain to think at. It's like, what are the environments and the situations and the conditions that lead to violence and how many of them can we actually control? Like, anyway, that's 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 kind of where, where my head's at the moment. It's not very practical right now. That's That's something that's just going to keep me awake at night for a while that's a really interesting like thought experiment though isn't it mm. it really is well, yeah and i mean all the all the best inventions come from what if right yeah what if yeah, yeah. We're, yeah we're, we're all our cities are full right now if you're in a if you're in a major city like there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of movement left there's not a lot of growing into the existing city and, and actually it was when, I, when i was in london that was kind of my, my realization is like you know this city is ancient uh, it really is and yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite funny as an Australian walking down the streets of London going, this was not built for cars. Like this, <laughs> this was definitely not built for cars. No. <laughs> Our cities were. <laughs> Ours are much younger. They were kind of built for purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, so we will have to build new cities. Yeah, we're gonna, we're, it's going to become easier to transport water and to do things like that that will move us into different environments. So, yeah, new new estates are being built in pro- previously uninhabited areas all the time. So how do we start applying strategic thinking to the kind of life we want there, not just the kind of houses we want there? Uh, and that's uh, anyway, mm-hmm. that's pro- pro- probably way too broad for a conversation on karate, but it's uh, that's kind of what I'm, where I'm sort of where my head's going at the moment. It's interesting though because you can. I, I love. I oh, so many things in that that whole mm. thing that you've just said that we could go there, but it's just so interesting that you're going there to talk about just violence prevention or de-escalating a situation, presumably with companies who are already concerned about it or have had some issues, but that it expands into the entire experience, not just of the customer but of the staff, and then the yep. whole the the whole. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? But the whole ethos, the whole way that everything is structured in a business is having an effect on the end result of a violent situation. Yeah. And yeah, it's, and, and, it's so true. It is so true. You know, we've all been customers and had an incredibly frustrating experience that could have been made so much easier if only someone had said, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Why don't you come here and would fix it straight away? 
Mm. Mm. And look, I would encourage your, you know, to bring it back to our, to our martial arts audience. I would encourage your martial arts school owners to think about when I have problems with a difficult parent, for example, and that's usually that that's that's usually the demographic that gives you the most frustration. <laughs> it's, usually, it's usually the parents that are unhappy with expectations. And it's really easy to go, how do I manage difficult parents? The, the bigger question is, what is it about my business operating model? What is it about my communication? What is it about my school? What is it about the expectations I'm allowing or not setting correctly or the boundaries I'm not drawing? What is it that is creating this situation over and over and over? If it's one person, it's an outlier. Okay, maybe that person is just not not very socially adept. Um, but if it's a repeated thing, so well, what can I change rather than just complaining about it? You know, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the uh, – I always – when we talk about self-defense, we talk about empowerment all the time, right? We talk about people need to be empowered to hit, to strike back. People need to be empowered, empowered to, to hit hard and to unleash and to do all those things. And it's, it's such a psychological game to get people to go from the victim mentality to a survival mentality. And we, we work on that so much in that physical self-defense realm, but we don't necessarily think about it in terms of our overall life. Like Mm -hmm. do things happen to you? No, not really. Things just happen. And sometimes they advantage people, and sometimes they disadvantage people. It's about identifying what are the things I get to control. And as long as I'm always exerting the right influence on the things I can control, then I'm not the victim. Uh, yeah. Sometimes bad stuff happens, sure, but you can still control a bunch of stuff. So, but that's kind of the that's kind of the angle I look at it, like every problem through. So what? Hey, sure, that sucks, but what's next? What are we going to do about it? Yeah, it's a good attitude to have, I think, in general. I think it's essential. Like really, mm. I, I think if you want to be, if you if you want to be successful at anything, whether it's running a martial arts school or yeah, surviving a fight, I'm hoping people are setting their ambitions a little bit higher than that. Um, or let's say competitive martial arts, right? Now, my background was in sporting martial arts until I was in my mid twenties, and that was really all that mattered to me was winning competitions. You can be really frustrated that you're injured and you can't train the way you want to train, or you can find ways to train around your injury. Yeah, and you can study film, and you can you can watch YouTube tutorials, and you can do all those things. And you go and watch training, and participate, and be part of the camaraderie. You can do all those things, or you can sit at home and eat chips. Like mm-hmm. they're both options. <laughs> it just depends which one you want to do. And I've I've done both. I've been doing way too much chip eating lately, but that's uh, <laughs> it's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I say this while drinking while drinking a beer. I'm not sure if this this video is going up, but uh, yeah. just for clarity. <laughs> Even though it's 7 a.m. for you, it is 6 p.m. here, uh, and uh, and I'm Australian, so I get away with it. Uh, also, enough. also it's a karate away. podcast, and I'm actually drinking an Asahi as well. So, you know, it's, it's I was going to say, yeah. Authentic brand placement. Maybe they can do us a sponsorship deal or something. But, yeah. hey, if, you get a, if you get a sponsorship from Asahi out of this, I want a clip. Absolutely. Just, just, just a six-pack a month will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be cool. That would be so yeah. A Japanese beer company sponsoring us. I'd love that's that. It. It. Love it. Let's do it. We should definitely do that. Mm. I've completely lost reps the thread now. Asahi I have questions. <laughs> Sorry, go on. So I was gonna say, any reps from us are here listening, then contact. <laughs> I think actually I think I actually uh, tried an Okinawan beer just recently as well. And uh it completely grabbed my attention because it had a um like a traditional painting of a sumo wrestler on the front on on the on the can i was like oh, wow. i'm gonna buy that purely for the art like i just yeah. like you you've 100 percent nailed me as your target demographic i'm buying that because it's got a sumo wrestler on it i'm in so 
whoever you are in that marketing department, job well done, sir. Uh, don't, unfortunately, I don't remember your brand, or else, so uh, maybe maybe not completely job well done. But yeah. you see the beer with the sumo wrestler on, I don't remember it being bad. There you go. There you go. They completely, we went we went from creating better futures and self and designing purpose built cities to uh, to cheap beers beer plugs. So that's this is going to be fun. But your <laughs> your your perfect city would include obviously the right beer available absolutely at the right time <laughs> always yeah, not, i mean it's gotta i'm not, it's not gotta. entirely sure if i was building from scratch that i would include alcohol in the mix of a violence free city but, uh, <laughs> yeah it's a good point to be fair <laughs> maybe try to create a create an environment where we don't have to drink so much maybe we'll roll with that i don't know i don't know as i said i don't have the answers i've just i've just got the questions at the moment which i feel is halfway there yeah absolutely mm. yeah so, yes. uh, so yeah, I guess to answer your your big question, um, I, I've literally all year I've been I've been consulting, I've been running projects, I've been experimenting, we've been doing research, we've been continuing to grow what we do and and try to help more people, um, try to try to reach as many people as we possibly can with the stuff that we do, and and, and try to keep people safer. And that's that's really, I think that's what we all care about uh, on the podcast and and hopefully in the community. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing one of your Facebook posts about your traveling and how long it you spent at an airport i think and i thought <laughs> how how is he doing this <laughs> how has he done this <laughs> it's it, it is kind of a weird thing when you're um you're literally the other end of the planet from from anything you kind of want to visit uh yeah i've, I've been asia is nice like, asia is close that's that's like probably the one advantage of being in australia if you like southeast mm -hmm. asia or new zealand obviously um or australia <laughs> like they, those are the things that are close to you um but the idea that you can get on a plane and you can fly for you know from where i am i can fly for six and a half hours and still be over australian landmass <laughs> like that's it's a really it's, a, it's it's kind of demoralizing when you have to go across the country somewhere because like you you're so far into the flight and you realize you're still in your own airspace mm. and it's still so much longer to go <laughs> but um but uh but yeah no it is kind of a it was a I hadn't traveled for a few years before this and uh, just those, those long sort of 24 plus hour transits uh, were uh, the first one was exciting and it soon lost its appeal. Yeah. Does it take you long to recover at the other end? Do you find? I don't know what it is. I, I tend to, I tend to be okay with that. Um, I've never really had terrible jet lag. I've had, I've had some days where I know I'm not very clear, but I, my, I guess my strategy is I, I very seldom am able to sleep on planes. Like I'm a, I'm a big guy. Planes are always uncomfortable for me. Unless someone wants to sponsor me for business class flights, you are welcome to. Uh, you're welcome to hit me up on the Managing Violence podcast if you're out there, Emirates, and want to uh, sponsor me. Uh, but um, uh, so I don't, I don't really sleep on flights. So if, I, if I've been on a 24-hour flight, I'm going to arrive pretty much dead tired. Uh, and uh, I usually tend to arrive early in the morning, sort of midday, so my, my usual goal is to just hit the ground running and just keep going for a couple of hours until I can get somewhere close to sort of normal uh, operating time in that in that country and then go to sleep sort of 7 or 8 p.m. and hopefully sleep a good 10 hours and wake up and be okay. That's kind of the my, my usual sort of strategy. Sometimes it works better than others. But, uh, but yeah, I, like I think when I landed in London, uh, it was about 10 a.m., and it had been 26, 27 hours or something since wow. I since I had left. Wow. Uh, and we yeah arrived at 10 a.m. Mary picked me up from the airport. Shout out to Mary for for driving me around. And we went. She said, "Do you want to go? Do you want to go crash or do you want to go do something?" I'm like, "Let go show me Oxford." So we <laughs> we just went to Oxford and just sort of 
did a very brisk walking tour around uh, Oxford for a couple of hours and got a bite to eat and then sort of crashed out about eight o'clock that night. So mm. that was, uh, yeah, Try, I, that's my general strategy. I don't know if that's a really sustainable strategy for everyone, but it works okay for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to get hot, hit sometimes by travel. I find the best thing to do is sleep as much as I can, like while I'm traveling and then yep. definitely sleep it off at the other end. Yeah. yeah, reset. Well, uh, and exercise is important too. Like, like being able to hit the ground and exercise, just to, especially if you, uh, like, with the change, the change of time zones, just to convince your body it is daytime. Um, so, like, I think um, the trip into Atlanta. So, I had a day in San Francisco on the way. I arrived at seven a.m. in San Fran after uh, sixteen or seventeen hours or something, and um, I basically like at seven a.m. So, I just spent the whole day <laughs> yeah, we got, just uh went went down to uh went down to the pier went down to fisherman's wharf and then sort of walked all the way to, to chinatown completely negating forgetting how many hills there are in san francisco i regretted that decision halfway through <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was on my way to see a bruce lee exhibit and i couldn't bring myself to uber it i had to walk um so uh, so yeah and then yeah pretty much the same thing by about 4 35 o'clock in the afternoon i was pretty wrecked and ready to uber back and uh just order some dodgy American takeaway and, and go to sleep. So. <laughs> Have a few beers. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it was Jack Daniels was the order of the day for for America. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. anyway. yeah. I'm just gonna I just got to circle back slightly because I've really got to ask you a little bit about the uh, the sumo with uh, Tommy Joe Moore because oh, yeah. that did that did sound like so much fun and uh, you were oh, really absolutely. looking forward to it and I just I've just got to hear your account of it. So tell us about that. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, as I mentioned, like, so much of what I teach now is really cerebral and it's kind of, um, it, it's fun and it's rewarding. Some of it's theoretical uh, and it can go in a really dark place. Like it can just be mm. like people want to just talk about rapists all the time and like it's kind of, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard to when you're doing it day in, day out, like to, to sort of yeah. be there in that headspace all the time, and especially if you want to do proper scenario-based training, like you kind of be able to access the psychology of these people. And um, and that can be pretty draining. So so the idea when Tommy said, oh, "Could you do a sumo seminar?" I was like, "Hell yeah! Like I'll I'll do a this complete I won't say nonsense. That's, that'd be insulting to to sumo, but but to just do something purely for the fun of it and just be able to teach something that I, I very seldom do. Someone ask me to teach a sumo seminar, and uh, it's just one of those random bag of tricks that I've got in the back of the car somewhere. <laughs> like I can pull out some sumo stuff for you, no problem. Uh, and it was it was kind of fun because we we adapted. I sort of showed this the sporting version of sumo, uh, well the like, I guess the yeah what people consider to be you know, sumo wrestling now, mm. uh, and uh, and showed the techniques that work in that environment, and also kind of the battlefield origin of, of where those techniques have come from and why they why they um, sort of exist the way they do. Yeah. Uh, and some of them some of them are purely sporting techniques, just like every other sporting martial art. There's some that have just been developed because they're good at winning. Um, but, um, but yeah, just sort of playing with a couple of them going, here's how you could apply this in a self-defense situation or in a jujitsu situation, or it's just, just fun to show some different angles on stuff that people do all the time. Mm. Yeah. Did look uh, like, it, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun just to have a bit of a wrestle and, uh, and, uh, just it, one thing I love about sumo wrestling and if, if anyone here has never watched it, you do, you owe it to yourself to go watch uh, a sumo basho where basho is a tournament uh, it runs every two months in japan the, the grand sumo and uh, just just look it up on youtube there's there's highlight clips that go up pretty much every day of the basho it's a 15-day event 
and just watch an hour of the highlights and uh it is so simple to understand like the rules could not be any simpler like if you if you get pushed out of the circle you lose and if you touch the ground with anything other than soles of your feet you lose like that's it there's no complicated point scoring system just don't get pushed out don't fall over boom uh and if you make your opponent do that you win so uh, and then there's, there's like, a, it's very Japanese. It's like nine things that are illegal and then a bunch of things that are impolite. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very, very much a microcosm of Japanese, Japanese culture. Yeah. So these things you absolutely cannot do. These things are just not very nice if you do them. So, yeah. Interesting. I've, yeah, I've never watched sumo. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do Thank that. I'm going to, I'm going to check out some highlight clips and, and see and have mm, a look. Do. You do, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. And look, so much of sumo. Uh, so if you watch uh, uh, Okinawan karate, has uh, tegumi, right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so there's an Okinawan version of sumo as well, which is a a little. I think off memory, I originally had jackets involved, so it was like a sort of jacket wrestling, almost like kuresh, like Eastern European jacket wrestling in some ways. Um, but uh, but the original sumo as well. Original sumo wrestling uh, was well, sumo means uh, sumai. I think means to strike. Um, so it was originally more like pancreation. It was more like a mixed martial arts. Um, oh, wow. and then it was, it sort of evolved down to something that could be practiced by soldiers uh, in between war, in between battles, or just as a morale thing to keep the guys that they were naturally aggressive to be able to give them something they could sort of play with and do that wasn't mm. going to break, break each other. Uh, and, uh, and then it became a re- religious sort of, um, yeah, a, a spiritual sort of thing as well, where it was done as for gambling, but also for uh, for demonstrations, so the opening of shrines and all that kinds of bits and pieces. So it's got a lot, a lot of different sides to it, depending on, depending on what you're interested in. I'll, I'll have a look. I'll check it out. It's a different type of wrestling, but I'll have a look. Yeah. <laughs> Go have a look. Are there any um, particular sites, or you, you said it's a yeah um just if you if if you honestly just jump on youtube and search for sumo yeah. highlights um you'll get sumo hundreds highlights. of videos yeah yeah uh if you if you get the nhk the uh the japanese broadcaster uh they usually telecast the uh the sumo every two months okay uh, i'm not i'm not sure what the access is like in the uk but um you can also pay for a subscription to watch it live if you want to but you can really just get the highlights while you're figuring out if you want to pay for it that yeah. sounds really cool. We'll look that up. We'll look yeah, that up. Yeah. We'll find some links and we'll link it into this. Um, we'll link it into there this. But share it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what? it's it's great if you've got a short attention span too, because the average bout length <laughs> is about twelve seconds. So oh, you, can, go. <laughs> you can really watch a whole bout and then just go. You know, I'm going to get some chips and come back and then watch the next one. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, yeah so it's uh, it's very it's not it's not long. <laughs> it's not a big commitment. I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, that's it. That's a new thread for us to start following. Yeah, the conversations sumo on thread. sumo. The sumo thread. Yeah. I feel like I feel like Pat McCarthy actually. You, you, we're talking about Pat offline, um, but uh, I feel like Pat has some insights as well there. I'll, 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 maybe with Tegumi. I, I, I feel like I've had a conversation with him about it at some point. Yeah, probably. Really? Yeah, very I think likely. He's done a lot of in, in uh, research into Tegumi. I think. Hmm. Yeah, look, I, I'm 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 a nerd about all this stuff, so <laughs> I like to find the linkages and see how it all came about and who influenced what, and and then and then kind of get into the uh, the online battle between oh that's just a technique that they stole from catch wrestling. It's like I don't know, human beings only move so many ways. Yeah, <laughs> if you if you, if, if you can tell me that I can win a month's worth of wages for making that guy fly onto his back, 
I'm pretty sure I'm going to find the same answer no matter what continent I'm on. <laughs> I'm yeah, exactly. I'm going to find the same kind of levers, the same kind of strategies. Sometimes they'll be more refined in one place than another, but uh, I, I don't I don't really uh, buy into the... Um, oh, the only reason they kick with their shins is they traded with the ties. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think people just yeah. worked out that, that that hurts. They did exactly. that to the other guy. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not no, a historian. You hear that wrong. a lot. Oh, they stole this from judo. They stole this from Thai boxing. No, they just they just yeah. weren't idiots like we think they might have been. You <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> and this is the thing that people people struggle to wrap their heads around too. It's like a lot of these martial arts were developed by full time warriors whose only job was fighting people mm-hmm. uh, or figuring out better ways to fight people when they have to fight people. That's that's an awful lot of time and resources to be able to figure stuff out. Yeah. It's it's not like you're uh, you know you're, you're a martial arts instructor for for six hours a week now and the rest of the time you're a dentist. You know, like, <laughs> you've got you've got plenty of time to experiment. Yeah, and we're not the first people to come up with the question "What if?" You know, so if you're full time warriors, you are going to be doing okay. What if you come at me? What if he's there? What if he's got a mate? What if? Yeah. That yeah. that question is is always the question to ask, isn't it? When you're gonna figure out a scenario, figure out what you're going to do, figure out how to improve something. It's always going to be, what if we tried this? Or what if you do that? What if, and then? That's right. And and, and now the, the the martial arts dilemma is, what if I don't get a new, enough new students through this term, right? Yeah. What if we tried this marketing strategy? What if we, what if we tried this promotion? What if they tried this grading day? Like we we're just doing the same stuff. Just uh, life and death now is more about paying the bills than it is about fending off raiding tribes. Mm. It is. Yeah. It is in the world we live in as well. I mean, the world has changed since COVID. You know, it's a a completely different world. How um, has that impacted your your work? I mean, obviously, practically it impacted your work, but has it changed in terms of um, what you're delivering, what, stresses people are going through in their businesses i mean i I see the clips on youtube and what have you of people um upset about masks upset about distancing and what have you so is that still influencing your work now it it actually is uh and it's it's an interesting thing because i think when we were in it uh anyone who is who's working in this field knew that when people lose their sense of sovereignty, their sense of power and self-determination, and when they, when they lose that sense of control over their own life and well-being, um, they act out negatively. All right. That's, that's kind of very basic human psychology. We know none of us like not feeling like we're in control being told to do something always goes poorly. So being told I have to wear a mask or I can't come in here if I haven't been vaccinated or I have to go do this or do that, that no one likes that. So we kind of predicted that would be a problem. Um, I'm not sure whether you had the same thing uh, in the UK, but here at the start of the p- pandemic, especially there was like purchase limits put on um, essential essential items. So yeah. yeah, you've got a flashpoint with a 17 year old kid telling me I can't buy three bottles of milk, right? And I'm going, well, I've got four kids. If I don't buy three bottles of milk, I come back tomorrow. <laughs> so I don't want to come back tomorrow. I want to get my week's worth of milk, right? So it becomes this this flashpoint. That we expected, uh, and then the people having to police masks, and then we we went through a phase where uh, retail was open, but only for people that were double vaccinated. So there had to be a vaccination check at the door, and that created a new flashpoint. So we had all this stuff that was reasonable you'd expect with these big problems. Um, and we we developed courses around how to say no because people don't know how to tell people no. 
uh, and they don't know how to be able to deliver that information in a safe way. So we built a course around how to do that, uh, which was just one of those things we didn't expect we'd ever have to do, but the market needed it, so we did it. Um, so that was kind of in the pandemic. One of the things that was interesting is I had some of my uh, my retail clients reach out and say, well, not reach out, we're just, we're just having a chat about how things were going now that all the restrictions had lifted, no controls in place, well, no, no overt controls, no, no, um, no mandates or anything like that. And they said, but people are still so angry. Like they're just yeah. so angry. And and it was an interesting thing to to sort of look at and go, well, it's almost like a shared trauma in, in yes. a way. Like we've all been through something now that we weren't prepared for. Mm. And that changes people. And the and everyone's had a different experience with it. So, like for for example, I always say I got to play the pandemic on easy mode in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, I had my four kids homeschooled. I was in the most locked down city in the world. Like that, it wasn't exactly easy, easy, but I got, I stored my salary. I could work from home. I could do most of my training consulting virtually. I didn't lose a business that I'd spent the last 15 years building up uh, through no fault of my own, just had it plucked away from me. Um, yeah. I didn't have to release staff. I didn't, I didn't lose my career. Like none of that stuff happened to me. So I have a very different viewpoint on the pandemic than what perhaps my neighbor has. And, and that in itself creates a potential for conflict because we're in completely different headspaces now. We both lived on the same street before, but now we've been through something that was both, that was, even though it was the same, um, same situation, it's a completely different experience that we've both lived. So when you put that in perspective, you start to see these clashes through a different lens that we just mm. have all processed just a bit differently. And it used to be like someone went through a traumatic event, it's one person you know, or it's a family that's been through something. And you kind of can cut them some slack because you might know, oh, you know, this poor person, they, well, what they've been through. But when it's everybody, we don't really cut anyone any slack because like I went through that too. But you didn't really because it was different for everybody. So there's all those kinds of things. Um, I would also say that I think everyone's baseline stress level is just a little bit higher. Yeah. And some people it's a lot higher. And yeah. when your baseline stress level is a lot higher, it doesn't take as much of a provocation for you to sort of spike into a, a flashpoint where you actually become aggressive or, or you say something under your breath or you look at someone a way that you wouldn't have normally looked at someone or you know, for some people they strike out at somebody. And I think that's really just a matter of their, their, their overall day-to-day -day stress level is just higher. And because mm. of that, those little microaggressions, those little triggers that would have otherwise just been a, hmm. <laughs> you, you meet someone and you're like, oh, you're very punchable. <laughs> you're a controlled human beings so you're like it's okay i can just walk away from you and smile and nod but if i'm if my baseline stress level is higher maybe i can't walk away maybe i have a real hard time tolerating what i perceive to be this insult or this yeah this this thing that's going on so mm. i think there's probably pieces of that and i think we will see the impact of that for a very long time because it has fundamentally changed the way some people interact with each other um, I'm very concerned about how um, the the impact of the pandemic and, and the response to the pandemic has impacted the way that teenagers um, in very in very key developmental years have learned to interact with each other. Um, I'm I'm concerned about the the change in social skills as everything becomes optional, whether you want to engage with the society face to face or not, where you can do everything virtually or not. Um, how those kids actually manage a face-to-face -face social environment when they don't get the choice. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about how we go about building that skill deficit. 
I mean, we're already seeing um, yeah, with our clients that have a, partic a particularly young worker base, they're, they're already telling me that the kids from now have so much less social skills than even the kids from five years ago yeah. because they're doing so much more interaction virtually. And mm. there's so much more nuance in in um, text communication or or voice communication while you're both playing a game together, for example. Things like that that just change the ability to be able to read someone's face, to be able to read body language, to have that emotional intelligence, to figure out when you're pissing someone off. Like they just they lack it. They 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 don't get it because they haven't practiced it. Uh, and uh, and that in itself is a is a really interesting chapter coming up in, in human evolution as those yeah. young people that are currently 15, 16, 17 years of age, you know, in, in 15 years, they're going to be the majority of our working force. So mm. how do they interact with each other in that environment? So it's interesting. It, it is interesting. This, um, this actually came up in the context of my work recently. I work for a charity and okay. um, we were talking to a, a teacher who was giving us some um, information and uh, this is referred to uh, apparently as cultural capital mm. in uh, in our world um, in the in the school teaching world if I remember it correctly and it is just that um, a real life experience a present in-person experience that you're having with other people doing something with your hands experiencing something and um, schools and educational places are looking for projects where more of the children can go to because still some education is online and there's been as you say there's been this huge gap in their experience of real life in-person stuff in a positive way um, which is informing the kind of projects that we do, you know, which is more in studio, getting kids in, actually doing something, creating something with each other. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely it's noticed and it's missing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even for workplaces, you know, when, when I consult to workplaces, it's so important to get people back together again and, and to get people one spot and, we've we've had the same thing we're, even when, even in my company we're geographically dispersed across australia we have little clusters of in in each location but we've our team is is quite widespread so we we try to get together um our management team gets together twice a year we all get we all come together for for a day or two days uh and have some social events as well and so on and just to build that camaraderie and the last two times we've had we've had a, a big covid breakout right the last two times it's been so, someone someone had COVID and now all of a sudden we've lost half the management team yeah for a week <laughs> it's, it's and 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 you can't help as a business go should we keep doing this because <laughs> one yeah. it's really expensive to fly everyone in and accommodate them and to take them offline for a couple of days to do this stuff and and then we lose them for a week afterwards like is this is this smart but the reality is that's how you that's how you keep staff together. Right? The, the loyalty that you don't develop loyalty to a brand, you develop loyalty to people. Mm. And if you want to keep your staff, I mean, if if it's just a job, and I can do the job whether I'm working for you or working for, if I'm can work for Greg or I can work for Susie, and both times I work in my home office at the same desk, sitting in the same chair, doing the same type of work. What makes me more loyal to Greg than Susie? It's really just a matter of whether I like the people. And if I don't know the people, then it becomes about who's paying better. Mm. So from an organizational point of view, if you want real loyalty, you've got to have, you've got to have relationships. And you can't have relationships purely online. It doesn't really – doesn't have the same value. So, mm. uh, But, yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think we need to get more kids interacting with each other um, physically, face-to-face, -face, 
there's there's a lot to be said for for shared hardship and for overcoming something together and that's why boot camps have been so popular for yeah, for, for lots of reasons it's why crossfit became so uber successful it's about mm. as a team beating something that was really hard um that's that's why crossfit took off it wasn't to do with the workout results it was to do with the camaraderie yeah. uh in fact in fact i think crossfit sort of borrowed a lot of that from what makes the best martial arts yeah I, I, the best martial arts experiences i've ever had have been when me and my mates who all trained together had to overcome this beast of a session that our instructor laid out for us right and there's like just never-ending shark tank drills or yeah or we went to a national training camp and it was like three workouts a day for two weeks and like those are the stories you tell you talk, tell about and those are the people you bond with for life because you went yeah. through something hard together um yeah and yeah not not to certainly not to downplay it or to uh to um say it's a similar in terms of significance but the same thing about people going to war together like you bond when you go through something really hard together mm. yeah and um yeah i think we need to recreate that in safe ways not hopefully not sending people to war that's um that's, that's something we should probably try to avoid doing yeah absolutely <laughs> i definitely think we should avoid that at all costs yes, yes. As, as the violence prevention guy i probably shouldn't be pro-war just <laughs> Just put it out there. Yeah, seems to be a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not definitely not a fan of us all going off to war. No, definitely no, not. No, peace, peace all the way. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Bonding experiences. Yeah, and probably just to elaborate doubt. on that, in, ca in, ca in case any martial arts instructor is listening, going, ah, oh, I could do a camp for kids where I just brutalize them and make them suffer together. Um, <laughs> I, everybody's heart is different, right? For some kids, just getting up and having to do something in front of their friends and fear, that fear of being judged, being judged, that is going to be the life-changing experience for them. Mm. And doing that with a couple other kids that are equally as scared about doing it, that's going to be enough. You don't have to beast them and, yeah, make them cry. So just want to put a caveat on that before anyone takes it the wrong way and goes, well, that sounded really insightful. I'm going to just give these kids lifelong trauma now and say they're bonded over it. Yeah, don't do that. No, definitely don't do that. Do not do yeah, that. These guys will lose their beer sponsorship if we do that. Yeah, exactly. We've just got it. We need to keep it. I haven't got my free beer yet. <laughs> we need the free beer. We do. We do. That's right. That's right. Should we uh should we jump into some questions from Joe mm. to Joe? Yeah. Yes. Joe to Joe. A little, little, little bit of Joe on little bit of Joe on Joe action. Joe on Joe action. This. <laughs> this, is pay, this is the paid section. This oh is my the, lord. Uh, it's a, the paid this is the Patreon only. Section. This is the only okay. fans. These are the only fans, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Jeez, I'm uh, I'm glad I'm drinking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm glad you're drinking as well. Uh we have three questions from Joe. Uh, we'll see how, how many we get through. See. Sure. We'll see where we go. Uh, the first one is is kind of the responsibilities of a martial arts instructor. Because we, we've been having this discussion of, are we responsible to impart self-defense on people? And I'm kind of thinking, I, my view is, it used to be yes. Now it's since talking to people like you and Rich and Pam, it's kind of like, no, this is too big of a minefield for us to be trying to cover unless we're properly educated on it. So what what do you think the responsibilities of a karate instructor, martial arts instructor are to the students? 
I think you have a responsibility to do what's on your marketing. It's, uh, I, I think you you have to you have to deliver what you promise you're going to deliver. Mm-hmm. And if you if you decide that you know what this self defense thing is too big and I don't have the time or the willingness or even uh, like I don't, it's not that doesn't excite me that much I would rather just teach karate for karate's sake. Um, and that's what you'd like to do, then that's fine. Just take self-defense off your window. Right. It, it, that's, that's, that's kind of my answer. And it's like, mm-hmm. like do you, I, I don't know if the same thing happened in the UK. I'm going to assume it did because it seemed to be a pretty global trend, but towards sort of the mid to end of the, um, the, the first decade of the two thousands, did like every traditional martial artist suddenly have MMA? Like, er, like every school, every full-time school suddenly had an MMA class. It's like, who, who's teaching it? Like wh- which fighters are, are training yeah. out of your gym? And it's like the, every Wing Chun place now had an, had an MMA class where they just did Wing Chun, but then they rolled on the ground a little bit. Um, and it was, it was a way of capitalizing on the market. And to me, that's just as disingenuous. Like if you're not going to train with a level of expertise in a particular skill, then don't do it. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of where the onus is. And it's, it's, it's no, there's no value judgment for me. Like there's, I, if I train martial arts now, I don't really train for self-defense. That's that's not what interests me. The physical side of self-defense doesn't interest me very much at all. In terms of my own training, I'm happy to teach it, but I'm fairly comfortable that I can I can manage most situations I'm ever likely to be in, and hopefully I'll never be in another one. Like uh, hopefully all my violence is in the past. That's what I'm, that's what I'm really I'm really anchoring that on. I'm trying to make good life decisions, right? To make to make sure I'm not put back in those situations. And enough of it in the past. There's en- there's enough experience there. Um, so for me, like training now is about I want to train in a place where one, I'm not getting injured uh, because that is a massive impediment to the rest of my life and, and recovering from injuries takes a lot longer than it used to. Uh, I want to be in a place where I feel safe. Uh, so I don't feel like there's in it. There's guys that are waiting to use me as a throwing dummy all the time. Um, I want to be in a place where I feel like I'm growing and I'm, ex- I'm advancing in something. I'm doing something that's, that's, that's difficult that, that I can continue to, to learn at. Uh, and I'm doing something that just makes me a better person. Like that's that's why I train martial arts now. And for that for that reason, um, I would be just as happy going somewhere and learning kata or learning forms or if that's what or, or or stick drills. Even though I'm so unlikely to ever get myself into a fight where I happen to be holding a stick, I would just rather do that because it's difficult and I enjoy the process of it and it helps me blow off steam after a stressful day at work. Right. That's, that's, that's why I train now. Mm. Um, whereas the, the person who's coming off the street who wants to learn self-defense because they're scared or because they do live in a really dodgy neighborhood and because they have been a victim of violence or because they, that person needs someone who knows how to help them with that situation. Not someone who's just put it on the window because that's what people expect. Uh, and I, and I think that's kind of where you, where the, the ethical question lies is you can teach whatever you want, but just make sure you're only marketing what you can actually do. Hmm. Now, on that. So I think we, bri- we briefly chatted, chatted about this last time, but obviously I think the general public's perception when they think of self-defense, they think of martial arts. It's it, just because of films, just the whole culture of, they, they think of, martial arts they see mma and they think self-defense how do you how do you address that when if you know someone does ring up you're a martial arts teacher and someone does contact you and say oh i need to learn some self-defense this this that and the other's happened to me in the past Mm -hmm. because obviously from a from a teacher you don't want to 
potentially you don't want to turn people away yeah but... you don't want to turn people away and then send them to the other martial arts school who says yes we do do sure. self-defense mm, mm. um yeah how, uh, how and, and this that? and this where yeah and this is why i think in a perfect world i mean you don't have to be an expert in everything you don't have to have a yeah phd in theoretical physics to teach you know elementary school maths like that there shouldn't be should be where we set the bar uh, I, I think it's not too much of a leap for uh, someone who's running a karate class to spend a day in their life educating themselves on the basics of this stuff mm. and then to be able to impart that as part of their karate class. And then I've got no problem with what you're doing. As long as you are not saying when your uncle attacks you like this, right, with, with, with an overhand hammer fist, then you do this block. Like, as long as you're not saying that sort of stuff and you're, and you're being realistic about what real violence looks like and you're seeking out that education, you don't have to be a master of it. You don't have to. Otherwise, there's like, you know, 100 people on the planet that should be teaching. Mm. Um, and and that's that's not realistic or scalable either. So I, I think it's it's a matter of just being honest. If you want to, if you want to help those people, then go get the information so you can help those people. You don't have to be an expert at it, but you can just expand your horizons a little bit rather than just sort of pretending that what you do is good enough. Um, so I, I think... That's probably where where I'd land on that. And at the same time, I'll, I've have turned people away from places that they want to come train with me, and so oh, I, I want to learn self defense. Can I come train at your gym? It's like you could, but you're not going to learn self defense there, mm. uh, because what we do, what we do is judo and jujitsu and boxing, and we can you can come learn those things, and they might have some applicability. But if you want to learn real self defense, that's something different. Uh, and and that's uh, and it's, it's it's tricky because I know they'll get some benefit out of that but it's not really what they need. So I don't know. It's, it's always a little bit great. It depends on the individual. It depends on what they need. If it's a, if it's a kid is getting picked on at school and what they really need to make themselves a little bit safer is a little bit more confidence Yeah. to be able to stand up for themselves, to be able to project themselves a little bit, not protect, but project them, project an aura of strength and, and, yeah. and confidence. Then honestly, martial arts will probably do just as good as any other hobby um, yeah. to help them do that. So it's not necessarily a lie. But if it's someone who is, um, let's say, working in a yeah, uh, a lady I was helping place in a in a class recently where she she uh, works as an as a escort, and because of the nature of her work, deals with some pretty ordinary human beings and was mm. looking for classes like that's not someone I'm going to send to your average martial arts class. No, uh, that's someone who I need to send to a real specialist who can really help her with understanding what she can and can't do and and what's going to work and what's not going to work. So. Um, yeah, different people. You got to get to know your customers before you can make recommendations. Mm. Can I just add a, an extra question in there, Greg, in mm, the middle yeah, of course. these questions? Yeah. Because um, while we were getting ready for this, I went back and listened to our previous interview. So we, what I, you know, obviously we didn't want to ask you all the same questions again. I wanted to really <laughs> remember what we were talking about. Um, and there was something that I, I would really love you to expand just a little bit on. Um. Um, just for my own self-interest, really, from from the place, the conversations that I end up having with. Um, you were speaking about how you have daughters, and um, that so you you know you you've given some thought to teaching women, particularly in self-defense, and that you um, were focused on the things that like increasing confidence, boundary setting, recognizing red flags in friendships and relationships and being taken advantage of. And I was wondering, um, I wasn't quite sure from our conversation if you're actually teaching those things or giving pointers to people how they can um, 
develop them in their own lives um, or learn them further. And I wondered if you could just expand a little bit on those things, because I think those are incredibly mm. useful, not just for women, actually, but for mm. anybody in those in any relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, look, I, I do go into those topics in varying levels of detail when I'm when mm. I'm training people, um, and I'm not an expert in all those things. And I and the one advantage of being a podcast host is that I now actually know a lot of experts in things. So, so I can I can just sort of go, you know what? That sounds like a question for a Tammy Yardmacrack, and let's go, let's go, <laughs> let me introduce you to Tammy, and you ask Tammy, or you go go read her work or whatever. Um, so. Uh, I think uh, yes, yes, to some degree, just like I was talking about before, I don't have to be an expert in something to be able to help a 10 year old mm. uh, or you know, we, we're all capable of doing our kids maths homework to a certain level. right? And then at a certain point, they change how you do mathematics and now, now you have no idea how to do anything. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, but uh, I think it's one of those things that they're, they're, they actually say they're, they're human skills. It's not just about young girls it's, or, or about yeah. women. It's, it's, it's Absolutely. about humans in general. Mm. Um, and because we all, again, we all have a different lived experience. We all have different social networks. We all interact with our social network differently. So even though we can generalize and say the nature of threats that are against women uh, are different to the nature of threats that affect the average young male, that doesn't account for someone who is perhaps non-binary. It doesn't, it doesn't account for the, the nature of someone who is, is more, um, mm. yeah, perhaps a male who is not as overtly masculine as such, and therefore may interact with society in a more feminine way, which changes the nature of the social situations they're likely to be in. And yeah. so it goes on and on and on, right? We shouldn't Absolutely. be, we shouldn't be sort of going, this is men's self-defense and this is women's self-defense. Absolutely that's not, not how no, we interact no. with each other. Right? Um, so, but yeah, the, the skills are applicable. And I think sometimes for the sake of conversation, we generalize just to, to, to hit the majority of the audience. But, um, but yeah, I think this, the skills like being able to set a boundary, um, being able to, be able to, to say calmly and confidently with a sense of sovereignty that uh, I don't like when you do this because it makes me feel this way. Could you please stop doing this? Right. Be able to form a coherent thought that clearly articulates the behavior. I want you to stop mm -hmm. the reason I want you to stop it and what I'd like you to do instead. Right. And, and though, if you can do those things and set a boundary and then guard it and to not let that boundary get crossed, that's a great life skill. And if they do, if they do cross the boundary, knowing what your escalation point is, what do I do now? Mm. Okay, if, they, if they're not taking it seriously, how do I do this? What do I do if the person tries to negotiate around my boundary? At, at, at what point do I backtrack or do I hold it or do I change the boundary or do I not? Who am I dealing with? Have And what emotional state am I in when I'm setting the boundaries? <laughs> there, mm. there are times where you can teach someone to set a good boundary and then they get really angry and they set a really aggressive boundary. <laughs> I always sort of think of like the uh, it's like a Simpsons episode or something where like one of the characters like drew a line across like the like, like you, this is your side of the room and this is my side of the room and like one side of the room was like nine tenths of the room and the other person was just stuck in the corner. Like sometimes you can set a boundary that when you wake up in the morning you're like oh, I was probably a bit of a jerk about that. <laughs> I might need to walk that back, but I'm walking it back because I decided to, not because I'm being pressured to. So I mean that that's kind of. Um, yeah, what part of the art of boundary setting and boundary maintenance? I guess if we want to, maybe that's a new term. I should uh, should copyright that boundary maintenance. Boundary um, maintenance. <laughs> but that's the hardest thing, right? Sometimes you have boundaries with people, and then as the relationship develops, those boundaries start to disintegrate, yeah. and you just got to make sure it's a conscious choice and not something that you've just allowed to to let slip. And mm. uh, I, I'm probably going on a tangent now, but it's one of the things we notice with with sexual harassment, for example, and in the workplace and in, in any sort of 
ongoing relationship, whether it's at school or whether it's at work or whether it's with family members, is it's the it's seldom the everything's fine to oh I'm being attacked. Like that's that's not usually the progression. Yeah. It's usually that chipping away at boundaries. It's just being a little bit too close. Or it might start with sexual humor, for example, to see what the reaction is, to see if you'll see if you'll be made see if you'll act uncomfortable, see if you'll call me out on on saying that around you or saying that in the workplace, for example. And if there's no reaction and there's no repercussion for doing that, then that's sort of a, a green light that that's okay. That's, that didn't cross any boundaries. I'm good. I can keep going. And then it will be the same humor and then it will be more overt and then it will be taking away personal, personal space. And then it might just be being around you a little bit too much. Or I just happen to happen to you use the copier at the same time you're using the copier. And th and then it's going to be the accidental touch. You know, we're walking past each other and oh, I brush past you and you know, my hip touched your hip, right? Just to see whether there's a reaction. And every time there's not a reaction where a boundary isn't reinforced, it becomes a green light to go further. And then over a period of a month, now we're at a stage where the offender can, in their own mind, justify they have consent because none of these things have been pulled up and the absence of the absence of denial is is perceived to be consent now that's not okay it's certainly not legal it's certainly not ethical but this is the the progression of a predator a predator's mindset where they feel like they've they're not really doing anything bad now uh and that's a that's an interesting slippery slope to look at mm. Mm. and none of it none of it gets solved with a high block unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> And look for the for the red flags thing. There's some really good books I recommend. Um, the Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker is always the, yeah. the 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 gold standard everyone recommends. Um, there's also a really good book called Creepology, and the name of the author escapes me right now. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Creepology is is an interesting one for especially for for young women dealing with that kind of sexual predation, especially that sort of lower level sleazy predation as opposed to the big scary jump out of the bushes thing that never really seems to happen mm -hmm. that frequently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's, there's a couple of good resources on that. Yeah. And like you say, those are skills that apply to absolutely everybody, really, mm. you yeah. know, just that boundary setting and confidence is just like, it's absolutely huge, really. Uh, look, I, I, I'm, I'm having to keep resetting my own boundaries to my four-year-old because she just is such a bully. <laughs> she, <laughs> she does not respect my boundaries in the slightest. <laughs> Do uh, not if, wake me up at four o'clock in the morning. Okay. Uh, it's, like, it's, 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 a, it's a miracle she hasn't barged in during this interview naked and just like demanded to take over the call. Uh, she has no boundaries <laughs> sense whatsoever. There's um there's a, a, a TV clip. Um, I don't know if you ever saw it. It, was, it went absolutely everywhere. I think it was a BBC report. Oh, yeah. The, oh, the yeah. kid the barge in, yeah. You yeah, know, great. Kid, and the poor, poor, um, I think. Uh, and, the, uh, and the wife, yeah. Frantically dragging her out. <laughs> Tatty's on BBC. Yeah, that was great. I love that. That's so funny. But it was so okay. good because everyone, like, literally everyone in the pandemic could relate to it. We're like, yeah. oh my god. Yeah, everyone relates. Yeah. Okay, back. So. <laughs> yeah, sorry, back, back to back to the scheduled question. Back to the scheduled no, question. I, 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 I hijacked say, that. It, it, the 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 boundary setting thing is something you could very easily implement into a martial arts class. Yeah. With we've had this discussion like with Ian before, you know, about if your partner's going too hard with you, having the confidence to say you're going too heavy, you're going too hard. Yeah, that's I've never thought about that before. Absolutely. In that, in that way. 
you could actually practice it too. Like just, you know, you, you make me uncomfortable with how fast you're moving or like I, or I, I've got a dodgy knee. Can you not do that? Yeah. Right? Can you, can, you know, when we're practicing on this side, can you not make contact? Cause my knee's a bit dodgy today. Oh, you're not, I don't want to practice with you today because you're not respecting my boundaries. Mm. I'd like to change partners. And then here's, here's a culture test for the, for the instructor in the dojo. Do you respect when someone says, I would like to change partners because this person is not respecting my boundaries. Uh, and that's, I, I know it can be a slippery slope because you're like, am I just going to accommodate every person who wants to have a sook about the drill being hard? Okay. Well, that's not what we were saying though. Uh, has the no, person yeah. established, yeah, has the person established a, I just want to cut off anyone. It's like, oh, that's ridiculous. I can never manage that because otherwise we'd just be changing partners left for unsentable. If you are, then what's wrong with the culture of your dojo? Mm. <laughs> Why are so many people uncomfortable? Um, so I, I think there's, uh, there's ways that we can proactively work on this stuff. I like Ian's suggestion there. There's a, there's a lot of value to that. Yeah. It is. Yeah, that, that's never left me, actually. That particular conversation that he that we had with him all those years ago has never left me. I know that not with every single partner, but certainly with some partners, I try and make it very clear. If I go too hard, you must tell me. Yeah, and, and, and in boundary setting, we call that self-awareness. All right to to be aware of your own tendencies, your own uh, your own quirks, the things that might make you upset somebody else. Like to have that level of self awareness of, I know sometimes I get carried away. I know sometimes I like to have fun with this, and it's uh, and and that might make you uncomfortable. So yeah, um, that's that's important too. And and look, the same thing can apply in a workplace. Just to go back to uh, full, back to full circle, like it might just be I like a bit of banter, and yeah, if we have a social night, and um, so. Yeah, so so having that self awareness of like you know what, I like a bit of banter. It's been a really stressful year. It's our, it's our, it's our Christmas party. Like we're in Christmas party season right now as we're as we're talking. This is where most of the HR complaints are going to come from. This next this <laughs> next two weeks, right? This is where this is where every HR manager's life goes to hell, right? And 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 le lawyers on retainer start sharpening their pencils, right? They know it's coming. Um, it's just be able to have that communication about what's acceptable and what's not, right? And 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 the self awareness that I'm here to blow off steam, but that person looks a little bit uncomfortable, so I need to temper my party desires when I'm around this person because they don't look like they're, they're brand new and they don't get it and they're still a little bit concerned. Right. Um, so yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot of that. Um, I forget what we're actually talking about, but boundaries and parties and Christmas and stuff. I think it all connects. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Okay. I, I will ask the next question. Sure. Um, to be honest, I can kind of merge these two into one. Um, what is your definition of the term self-defense and how that and essentially do we need more than one term because i think there's a lot of confusion around terminology you know this is self-defense this is self-protection in my yeah. head i it's just all kind of the same thing yeah you know, the way i kind of think of it is anything that's not physical is the self-defense core stuff anything that's physical is what happens when all that stuff kind of has failed yeah um i, I tend to take the the mark McYoung approach that self-defense is a legal term uh, mm -hmm. and and because it's a legal term it has a very clear definition it's it's a defense you use when you're charged with assault 
<laughs> that's that's what self-defense is like you you are defending yourself and the reason that you are saying you're defending yourself is because you had to hurt somebody all right so so uh that's why i don't like using the term self-defense unless i'm really talking to someone who is pretty much off the street and that's what they've asked for and they, they mm. don't really if i'm talking to practitioners the term i like to use is violence prevention and management so yeah i know it's a little bit it's it's, it's cumbersome but it's what we do. It's it's violence prevention and management. So the prevention is is obviously foremost. Do I how do I stop this bad thing from happening? Or how do I make sure the violence doesn't happen in my community, in my home, in my workplace, in my dojo, you know, when I go out at night, whatever. Uh, and the management is what do I do if it does happen anyway? I uh, did all the prevention stuff, it still didn't work. I got unlucky. Yeah, sometimes it's gonna happen, right? I, I try I try not to go to a service station at two o'clock in the morning, but uh, we were out of milk and I had to. <laughs> so I end up in a bad place at a bad time and I, I didn't have a choice to be able to avoid those things. Yeah. So um, I might question whether you needed milk at 2 a.m., but that's that's um, not my <laughs> lifestyle. Um, so, so my cat was very insistent. Um, but um, <laughs> I think so, so violence prevention and management, I think is probably the term that encapsulates what I think we do. Um, yeah. I'm happy to I'm happy to put in self-protection or self-defense if we need to. I find defense, it immediately puts people in a reactive mindset uh, because I'm reacting to something bad. And whereas I really want people to be proactive about what they do to prevent the bad thing. I think that's where self-protection came from. I think that's where why there was the deviation there where people say, I don't teach self-defense, I teach self-protection. And that was really a, a combination of the more combative systems combined with personal security, uh, personal security management, um, yeah. which is cool. But I think that term got sort of appropriated significantly by the camo pant wearing um, that everything is a terrorist situation crowd. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and then they kind of sullied that term as well. <laughs> so I think I think we just kind of like we keep changing words once that enough people we don't like us start using them. It's kind of like when you're trying to name your child and you realize how many people in your childhood you didn't like uh, because you <laughs> can't use that name yeah. now. You're like oh god, I, I can't I can't have a Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, sorry to any Trevor's listening. Um, poor Trev. But, um, poor Trev. But um, but yeah, I think it's kind of the, it, to, to some degree it's semantics. I just like to put the label on the tin that says what's inside it. That's that's my preference. Yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's not very good for search engine optimization. So that's also a real battle. <laughs> well, on that the the physical side, um, one of the one of the chats me and Joe were having recently was. Um, I hope Joe doesn't mind me saying this. If he does, I'll check with him and we can kind of work around it. But we, we, were, we were talking about um, the self-defense that we teach. And I kind of said, well, I don't, I don't think we do teach self-defense. We teach, we teach martial arts, essentially. Like, I don't think anything we've done in our class recently is, is for self-defense. And Joe's argument was, well, it, it, it's a, applicable to the self-defense and I said, well, yeah, I mean, it, it could be applicable to kind of 1% of situations. But I don't think that gives us the, the um, it, it gives us the allowance to say that that's what we're teaching. Mm. So so in terms of physical stuff, what 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 is the kind of thing that you would normally teach? Uh, it's such a piece of string question because uh, it, it depends entirely upon what the person's abilities are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How, how long they want to train for, and and yeah, and 
I, I, if they, if they're just a hundred percent interested in self-preservation, but they're young and fit and healthy and they are happy to train day in, day out. Like I'm going to get to a certain point where I'm like, what's in your lifestyle that makes you want to train this hard to avoid something bad? Like mm. it, it feels like this, like the person's a police officer or they're working in a really high threat environment and they want to train really hard because they know the day is coming when something bad will happen. Then like, by all means, like go for it. That sounds fantastic. But my my biggest concern with those people is always is the train are you doing training is the training a positive thing in your life or is it a negative thing in your life yeah and and I know I've trained people where I realized the training was actually feeding into their delusions and paranoia more so than it was helping them yeah mm-hmm. and I've said you will get more value out of going to do a boxing class than you will out of doing more shredding ripping gouging stuff you can do this stuff go do something that blows off whatever's going inside your head that makes you think that you everyone hates you and they're out to get you mm. right that's 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 more of a concern um but um to answer your question i i, I think everything it, it does depend um i i'm not opposed to the idea that anything in martial arts can potentially be useful in, in a, in a self-defense situation i haven't found an application for my bow techniques but if it happens that <laughs> cool I, I mean if i happen to be attacked as i'm changing the curtains that would be just amazing like like huzzah finally i found an application for this yeah watch this be a technique um but um i think probably it's to, to use an analogy because i do love a good analogy like if if i if i can teach you how to water a lawn is that the same as teaching you how to fight a fire i mean they're both they're both using a hose that's very good <laughs> it, it, could, it could potentially like work yeah, I'm not sure. Like, it'd be fine if I was going to teach someone how to put out a a bin that's on fire, but I wouldn't market myself as a fire brigade academy, mm. <laughs> right? So, like, I don't think there's anything. You don't feel guilty about this stuff being, you know, lower percentage. It's just being honest. So, you know what? This, yeah, yeah. This would be, you know, if this ever happens, this, this stuff I've used, especially when I was bouncing. Um, and you know, like the yeah, Mary Stevens talks about the four bounces by bounces, you know, like that, that, that element of self yeah, that, that when she said that, I, I thought, yeah, no, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Oh, yeah, there's so many of us, there's so yeah. many of us out there going, I've been in real violence. It's like, yeah, but my violence looks nothing like your violence. Uh, the violence that I dealt with, yeah, a couple hundred, yeah, quote unquote fights, um, but that looks nothing like what a 55 year old accountant with a dodgy hip is going to deal with catching a public bus home. That's that's got nothing to do. My experience got nothing to do with their experience. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that's that's it. What it, one thing bouncing does do is it gives you a bit of a a canvas to experiment with, because there's always going to be someone who wants to test something, and there's always going to be someone who wants to try something. And if you're in, you've got enough control and you're enough confidence in your skills to be able to back it up, you can play with stuff. And there there have been techniques that I used in yeah you know, what you consider a real fight that. I wouldn't have considered and I would never teach in a combatives class or in a short class because I had you know, 10 years of judo training at that point and I could do foot sweeps and I could do like little ashi was the techniques and just see if it made it, see if it worked. Mm. <laughs> and, and if it didn't work, I had a bunch of other stuff that could work in, you know, to fix the problem. Um, and same, that's how, that's how I figured out de-escalation as well. I just, because I had confidence that if, it, if the de-escalation failed, I'd, I could still win the physical fight. Um, that gave me, more confidence to be able to keep playing with the de-escalation t- tools and see what I could make work in that regard. So, um, 
long-winded and probably tangential way of, of answering it depends i don't think you have to feel bad about teaching lower percentage stuff because we all need variety and something fun to do and the vast majority of people training with you i'm going to assume are there because they want to do something fun that is social that gives them a that workout my next point yeah absolutely yeah. is yeah, and, and you know what like honestly if you're a miserable angry human being and that's why you keep getting into fights i would rather you go play tennis twice a week because you enjoy it then do martial arts classes because you think it's going to keep you safe. 100%. Because yeah. you are going to get a much better personal safety and violence prevention return from being a better, well-adjusted human being who manages your stress better because you do something you enjoy than knowing a couple of martial arts techniques. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think... Like, I don't know. I just don't think martial arts need to obsess about being the answer to violence prevention. Even on a physical, even on a physical, a physical tools point of view, you give me the average karate black belt versus someone who's played rugby at a, at a high level for seven or eight years and put them in a real fight. Yeah. Probably going to go the rugby player. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. All right, and yeah. and they're not marketing themselves for self defense, but nope. they can run, they can hit, they're tough. Yeah, probably been a few scraps. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, and, and that's not a that's not a denigration on karate. It's just as different things, different attributes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think just to clarify, in case anyone has taken offense, and I don't think they will, but um, I I love martial arts. I, I really love the martial arts, and I think there's so much more than what we allow them to be in our own heads. And we we I've been through this battle myself where. Yeah, because I was in my early twenties at a time when the UFC was was just starting to to peak, and I was, you know, I remember what start, starting out. I started wrestling at a time when like MMA at the time in Australia was still called NHB and it was bare knuckle and like and I grew up watching that stuff where yeah you know, the fighters are getting paid in hot dogs and meth right um, and <laughs> and uh, hot dogs and meth <laughs> not not even exaggerating uh, but. Oh um, it was uh, like it kind of became this thing where it's like if I didn't have an MMA fight, then I was a poser. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of how I viewed myself. Like even though I was on a national judo team and I'd, I'd had success in this, yeah, in some pretty tough, yeah, competitive sport environments. Like, well, if you haven't done MMA, like if you were a competitive martial artist of this age at this time in history and you didn't do MMA, then you were not legit. Like you were not, you were just a poser that was playing pretend. And that's how I viewed it, and it really bothered me. Uh, because as it turns out, I didn't really enjoy doing MMA and I, I did it for a bit and I trained it for a bit and I was actually scheduled. To, I, I, I did a bunch of C-class tournaments and stuff where I, where I did amateur MMA and I was scheduled to have I had two pro fights booked, um, at a time when I, uh, I tore my ACL for the second time and that, and that pretty much, um, obviously wiped out those fights, but it was around about that time that I was, I was like 24 and I had just started, I got my first kind of proper professional job, I think. And it just kind of dawned on me that I was, it, it's okay that I didn't like being hit in the head. Like it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was okay that I didn't really like concussions and that I didn't actually make me a worse person for not liking concussions. <laughs> and it was like this weird and weird sort of epiphany that I had that like, oh, if you don't do this, it doesn't really change who you are. And and that was just me looking at martial arts through the lens of one particular measuring stick. And 
I think sometimes we do it the other way around as well, where it's like, well, if I don't get to be at least a fourth Dan, or if I if I don't get to the coral belt, or if I like if I don't get my black belt by the time I'm 30, like whatever it is, like it's sort of like the, the, we've failed in some way. So, but but whose standards and to what? Yeah. You know, the vast majority of people in your life will give exactly zero shits whether you are a black belt or not. Like yeah. they, they they think you're playing dress up anyway. So <laughs> what's the difference? Right? Yeah. The only people that the only people that are they were impressed remotely are people that are already in your social circle. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I I think as long as as long as you know why you do what you do and it and it makes you feel makes you a better human being and it makes you a better mum or dad or friend or whatever. Go nuts. I don't care if I don't care if you want to do drunken monkey drunken monkey, yeah, naked with a spear. Whatever whatever works for you. Like as long as this everyone's consenting and there's no cameras yeah, putting it on OnlyFans, um, you can do what you want to do. In fact, <laughs> yeah, in, in fact, if it is on OnlyFans, good for you. I mean, there's a niche for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who's the jiu-jitsu guy that just did an OnlyFans? <laughs> is there um, a jiu-jitsu guy? I don't, I don't, I don't know why I'd be surprised. He's Australian as well. Sense. Is he really? Um, what's uh, his name? I, I, was, I, was, I was about to throw out a couple of names, but I don't want to in case I'm wrong and they just get deeply <laughs> offended. He's like, uh, oh, that would be... Great Jones. Craig Jones. Oh, it's Craig he, Jones on there. Yeah, but I, really? I, it's literally, I think it's just for instructions and stuff. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, hey, fair enough. I was, I was, I'm so glad I didn't throw a name out there. I was thinking, though. <laughs> I could throw it out. No, no, no. Let's not risk me missing it. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. I don't know how those false accusations would play out in court. Um, <laughs> self-protection being demonstrated right there that's it, that's yeah. it. i just did a quick risk analysis in my head i was like nah, it's probably not worth it for the joke no it's never worth <laughs> it it's never worth it <laughs> um but yeah no look, i i think uh, just to, just to bring it around like honestly martial arts have got so much value and if it didn't we wouldn't be doing it now after all these hundreds of years all right we're all doing stuff that predates the lives of anyone we know uh and uh if it wasn't adding value in some way, it wasn't because everyone who did it beforehand needed to fight to the death or else they wouldn't have been able to teach it. Like, no, it was just, it, it makes people better. There's, there's something you enjoy about it. Like, uh, yeah, I, and, and we can be elitist too, depending on what angle you have. I've been the traditionalist. I've been the sporting guy. I've been the reality based self-defense guy. And each one gave me a point of arrogance about something else. Right. Yeah. The traditionalist was like, Oh, those MMA thugs or those jujitsu guys laying around on the mats and like yeah, getting stoned before class. And like, you, you have this like yeah thing. And then the sporting ones, all these traditional guys have never been punched in the face and they don't know if anything works. And, and then you get the reality crowd. It's like, Oh, what would you do against 14 ninjas with machetes? And it's like, <laughs> Die. Uh, die. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, but like everyone thinks they're better. And then at a certain point you get to the end and you're like, you know what? We're all just as silly as each other. Yeah, we, we've all we've all got things that we fall short on, and um, yeah, and and if you think your whole social circle and your whole world would fall apart if you weren't a martial artist, then I think the bigger question is what else are you building outside of that? Yeah, if that if if that's given you all those things, so train whatever makes you better at being human, and then don't worry too much about whether it's not good enough to win a medal or to fight off fourteen ninjas. Yeah. Try not to hang around in, in ninja-rich environments, I guess. How would you know? Well, this you is a good question, right? That's a very good question, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, they could, I mean, they like, could be here. I mean, pro probably don't like create blood feuds with people that have 14 ninjas at their disposal. I think that's probably the. I mean, I mean, if, if someone hates you enough to dispatch Just fourteen like assassins, like yeah. I mean, you, you've you've probably made some poor social decisions along the way. <laughs> sort of like. Just doing a quick review of my life there. Um. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, it's a silly joke, but I mean, honestly, like the, when um, uh, an area I grew up in, we we uh, used to have a lot of. Well, they probably still do. I don't live there anymore. Um, but a, a lot of bikey groups, yeah, outlaw motorcycle gangs, and they pretty much had all the guns, right? So Australia was relatively gun-free, just like the UK. Well, I don't say gun-free, but guns are tightly controlled. Mm. Um, and there'll still be shootings, right? There'll still, still be shootings, and it would still be with an illegally owned firearm. And people are like, oh, there's still there's still guns in Australia. Yeah, but it's it's usually criminals shooting other criminals. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, shooting of, of innocent people, uh, unless they just happen to be wrong place, wrong time, and get caught in the crossfire. But it's pretty much just criminals shooting criminals. So if you want to like gun defense in Australia is don't piss off people with guns. Like that's that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of them. You know what they look like. Yeah. If if you buy drugs off them, make sure you pay them. Like that's pretty much if you do that, you're unlikely to get shot. But yeah. um I yeah. think that's that's kind of similar to the to the knife thing in our in our country. We have a lot of knife crime. But I think in, not all of it. But I think the majority of it is gang related. Over drug, like that—that that is what it is. We don't tend to have guns. It tends to be a lot of, a lot of stabbings yep. and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I think I think there's, a, I mean, there's an interesting thing about about um, knife crime. And I, I, to be completely fair, I'm not completely up to date on UK stats and so on. But what I do know is that a lot of the people carrying knives are people that perceive themselves to feel vulnerable, uh, whether when yeah. and usually usually young people. Um, but mm -hmm. who are who don't have the maturity to make good decisions and therefore carrying a knife makes them feel tougher makes them feel yep. stronger makes them feel more important makes them feel more dangerous all those things that young men especially tend to crave and uh and that therefore the environment creates the risk it's, it's them wanting to have that and especially if they perceive that other people who don't like them carry knives and if we get into a dust up, that could become a knife fight. And if I'm unarmed, it's like they don't realize that how how bloody difficult it would be to actually draw your own knife and have a knife fight. Once you, unless you were unless you were proactively stabbing someone, it's very hard to draw your knife out and, and retaliate with a knife. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's it's as you said, it's it's about the environment. It's about who you're hanging out with. Yeah, don't go don't go places where there's big clusters of young people that are trying to do their mating dance and attract the attention of yeah you know, the other species uh, or the other sex i guess it's, it tends to be where a lot of these things kick off and uh, mm. which just like just last night there's a there's a teen stabbing on a beach not far from where i live and um it was the same thing it was, it was two groups of males bumped into each other some sort of some sort of confrontation ensued either about territory or some someone dated someone's girlfriend or something something happened along those lines and one of them gets stabbed and dies you know as much as that's tragic because any teenager that dies preventably is is a tragedy. Um, it's also hardly predictable and something that most of us in the field kind of just sort of shrug our shoulders at sometimes and go, well, you know, we've been doing it for a long time and uh, it's, it's it's part of our species. <laughs> a bit of a bit of a glitch in our in our matrix, I guess, or a bit of a yeah. bit of a yeah. It's a bit of a flaw in our design that we still do this to each other and we just got to prevent it as much as we possibly can and and obviously offer support for those that are impacted by it and. And hope that it doesn't create future shockwaves or more violence that comes in retaliation.
Yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry. I, t- I think I took that in a very morbid way. I'm not really sure how we ended up there, but it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Here we are. It's all Here good. Now I'm I'm conscious of how long we've been going. Um, so are you okay for time, Joe? I'm I'm good. I'm very good. Okay. I'm cool. enjoying myself. I've been I've been having a conversation like this for a while, so I'm 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 good to go. As long as you need to awesome. go. Shall we uh, shall we dive into some more light-hearted stuff? Yes. Please, we, we, we just talked about kids it. getting stabbed on the beach. Let's let's go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so last time you were on, you we we briefly spoke about wrestling, not sumo wrestling, <laughs> not sumo wrestling, no, real no, wrestling, we, real wrestling, professional catch can. Not these yes, amateurs do. who take their wrestling into MMA. No, 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 real wrestling. No. Sue, Sue had her. Let, let's get Sue's opinion because Sue had her first experience. Sue yesterday, go, can, you, can you send me some links so I know what the hell you guys are going to talk about? <laughs> I love the I love the dedication, Sue. Oh, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. The stuff I have learned since um since starting martial arts and since starting this podcast, I am I have learned to be more and more open minded. Basically, there's nothing going on up here. It's just empty space. It's just new stuff rushing through it all the time. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I I was um, saying to Greg yesterday, well, I just don't even think it's real, and he said, well, no, it's a performance, basically, you idiot, and I was like, um, okay, but right, it's real okay, to well, us, damn it. That changes everything, because I was always like, I I grew up in a in a different era, and I remember just thinking, I don't believe it, and now of course I know that I don't have to. So yeah, with you're, that, you're not, you're not lens, supposed to. We laugh at the ones that do. I don't, but I didn't know that. I genuinely didn't know that because I just turned it off. It's like, okay, it's just a bunch of people wearing lycra that really didn't ought to be. And um, I don't need to watch that. So I watched it last night with this lens of this is a performance. So I will tell you what I watched last night. Yeah, I sent you a few that I could find that I remember. Some more modern, some... Yeah, slightly I, older. To be fair, I knew I had to get up at six this morning, and Greg sent me these at ten o'clock last night. So my 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 <laughs> yeah, training right. was my training was fast. So I watched the Dudley Boys, Dudley Boys versus Hardy Boys versus Edge oh, and okay. Christian TLC match from WrestleMania. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm yeah, so go. I'm so impressed that you actually all know where that was from. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, I understand this now. This is Charlie Chaplin. This is Charlie yeah. Chaplin in in Lycra with big wigs and makeup. And it's like, okay, got got it. Got it. It's a performance piece. It's Charlie Chaplin in Lycra. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I, I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, with, a, with a lot more injuries, probably. I don't know how what Charlie's uh, osteopath bill was no, like. No, but I was but, just uh... like, it was just like, <laughs> he was a consummate performer. Brilliant physical yeah. performer, you know, all done for, you know, for, for sure. Brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as I saw this, I thought, okay, that's what we're looking at. We're just looking at beautiful performance. So I'm sold. Yeah. Actually, as soon as I got that and, and watched the Dudley Boys, I and this whole thing with ladders and everything. I was like, yeah. nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So so here, like this is something we, we talked about before. And I'm I'm actually really impressed, too, because because uh I've I've had this theory for a long time that unless you get sort of bitten by it when you're a kid, it's very hard to ever get it. Uh, and like I think like my okay, my my journey as a wrestling fan was uh, I I stumbled across it when I was about five years old, 
And um, and it was actually a terrible Hulk Hogan movie that brought me in, a movie called <laughs> Suburban, Suburban Commando, right? Awful B-grade 1980s, like every possible straight-to-VHS movie trope you could possibly think of. Um, I, I rented this this video, fell in love with the character that, that Hulk Hogan was playing, wanted just wanted more of it. Um, so the next week I went back to the video shop and I looked for anything that had that character on the front cover, and it was actually... Um, SummerSlam '89 was the was the, the next VHS I picked up because it had Hulk Hogan. Well, Hulk Hogan, the act, the 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 wrestler slash actor, mm. was on the cover. So I picked it up thinking it was going to be another movie like the one I just watched. And it turns out it wasn't. It was a, it was a wrestling event, and it just drew me in uh, because I think when you're a kid, you just you just sort of accept that it's real. Um, yeah. I was never really into superheroes. My superheroes were wrestlers. Like that was, and 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 especially the um, that late '80s, early '90s period. Especially in the in the what was the WWE at the time with WWE, so the WWF at the time WWF um, yeah yeah like it was all built for kids it was built for those larger than life superheroes with the big juiced up muscles and the yeah the over the top personalities it was it was like watching a Superman cartoon or an X Men cartoon except yeah. it was quote unquote real yeah uh, and that that's what drew me in as a kid and then I guess as, as you know, years go on you keep watching it. I didn't really question whether it was real or not. I mean, I, I had uh, older brothers that were into martial arts that would tell me it was fake, and I would defend it vehemently that it wasn't. Uh, and I think as we all was did. it, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until I was like, uh, I said, I must have been about ten years old or so, because it was around about the time we got internet, and uh, and I subscribed to to wrestling newsletters uh, when they used to. There was no like website with with uh, you know. Uh, notifications that there's a new story. Yeah. It was like you'd get a weekly newsletter in your inbox, mm-hmm. and uh, and I signed up to this wrestling newsletter. And I remember it was in that newsletter that I learned something that I think I had I already knew, but had put away, and that was that it was predetermined. And then that was a real big moment for my fandom because then I had to decide uh, these characters that I was emotionally invested in. I was like, is this still something that I care about? now that I know that they're not really fighting each other. Mm. And the answer was yes. And in fact, I actually fell more in love with it after that. Cause then I started, it's like, it was like this, I want to know everything about it. I want to know how it worked. I want to know why, like why they did what they did. And why does that wrestler that was on that, that show now on this show and got really deep in the weeds. And I remember, I remember having to break the news to my friends at the time, like guys, I need to tell you, <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like, I felt like I was telling yeah, I was talking about Santa Claus, you know, and um, and one of my friends like, oh yeah, no, I'm like, oh really? He goes, yeah, I just didn't want to say anything to you guys. I'm like, oh, okay. And my other friend was like, completely gutted, devastated, felt betrayed by the whole thing. Um, so <laughs> it was a real journey. Uh, but um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, to to your point, Greg, like this is the way I look at it now uh, is. It's kind of like uh, rhythmic gymnastics, or like like what was it like partner gymnastics, or part mm. or, or figure skating, like whatever. You, you, it's an it's a real performance that requires an incredible amount of athleticism and skill and danger and trust and so on. Yeah. Um. Sometimes it gets really silly, and I just like eh, like it's um I, I don't don't get into as much stuff as I used to. Um. Sometimes it's really badly done. Sometimes it's really really well done. But the 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 real art of professional wrestling, as as I understand, and I actually spent a bit of time training it as well, and and. Uh, uh, spend a lot of time around the industry at the, at the grassroots level. The real art is to be able to take people who are sitting in the stands who know it's not real, who know you don't hate each other, who know you're not really there trying to hurt each other, 
and still get them jumping out of their seats screaming for blood at the end. Yeah. Like if you can if you take the person who knows it's not real and get them into the moment through your performance, mm-hmm. it's it's no different to being on stage in a theater. Right. You you know you know exactly. they're actors. Yeah. yeah. Right. But like if you can get them to just let go of their inhibitions for a second, like that's that's when you get them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in the in the old days, like I mean, there's so many great stories from the eighties and, and prior with like yeah, the bad guys would legitimately have people trying to kill them. Like there, there was, um, there's been you know, several wrestlers that were stabbed on their way back to the locker room because they beat up the the good guy that was a local hero, and then people tried to rush the ring and kill them. Like, like, and that was like a, a mark of you've done a good job. Yeah, <laughs> I remember, uh, Jim Cornette talking. It was, a, it was a manager in the '80s, and we we're talking about like they knew they had a good house if they came back and their car tires were all slashed. Like that, that was how they knew they'd really <laughs> nailed it because. People would like trash their car, and that was there. That was like, okay, we we got them tonight, boys. <laughs> and, there was uh, a really good, um, there was a really good like uh, panel discussion show that the WWE did years ago. It's called Legends of Wrestling Roundtable. Oh yeah, I think I saw some and, of those. Uh, yeah, it was like a lot of the old boys talking about stuff like that, and that was really interesting. Listening to all mm. the old stories of the road of madness that used to occur. <laughs> Yeah, and look, I I really like the the British style as well. Not not so much the the big daddy stuff, um, but um, Shirley Crabtree. Was it Crabtree? Is that his name? Shirley Crabtree. I think it was a British guy. But there, there was a there was a, a a particular style that came out of the UK. Um, the the middleweight style, the cruiserweight style, that was very heavily influenced by catches catch can and legitimate wrestling. Mm. And if you didn't know what you were looking at, you couldn't see through it. You you couldn't see that these guys weren't really an athletic contest. And I think um, like you look at you look at it now, and if you've watched MMA, you kind of know what two trained fighters fighting each other looks like. Yeah. But at the time, when you couldn't see that all the time, like the stuff was quite believable. Like it wasn't silly. It was it was real joint locks and real transitions, and they laid their their mm-hmm. stuff in so you couldn't see daylight when they were hitting each other, and like it was they sold it in a realistic way. And most of these guys were legit tough guys that you know, um. I think about the guys who came out of the snake pit in Wigan, right? You know, they're like they're, they're coming out of you know, basically mines and uh, and fighting for money. Uh, and they were and all, all that really changed in the, the late 1800s through early 1900s is they realized that they could fight for real and make a certain amount of money, and then you'd have to fight new people next time and you'd make the same amount of money. But if the fans really hated somebody and they really liked somebody else, more people would show up to watch the match. So if you could construct it in such a way that one person gets more sympathy and one person gets more hated, you end up making more money for everybody. So then it becomes, uh, okay, well, you know, and if the match was more competitive, people got more excited and there'd be more bets made and then you get a clip off the bookies. And uh, so then it's like, well, okay, it's still a shoot fight, but we're going to, the first four or five rounds back when it was still done in rounds, like let's just make it really competitive. Like we'll just, we'll just work together. And then by round six, we're going to go for real. And then it was a way of sort of like milking the audience to get more money. Yeah. And that was kind of just the, the beginnings of, you know, by the, by the early 1900s, everything was pretty much all fixed to some degree or another yeah. uh, to, um, to, to manipulate the audience into, into caring more and therefore paying more. Yeah. And yeah. then it got really silly in the nineties. We started going through furniture just to, <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, that's when I got into it was yeah. like late, 99 early 2000s uh, i remember when it was when stone cold steve austin got run over by a car yeah. and and <laughs> that was that was the storyline of 
of who, of who who hit him. Oh, who, who ran over Stephen Who ran over Stephen right. yeah. Why? Yeah. Looking back, you go, why did you ever believe that was real? Because <laughs> there's always a cameraman right there. Yep, right Whenever there. one of these yeah. things happens. Right. Yeah. It's never filmed on a phone camera. It's like always like a big TV camera. It just happened to be right there when the guy gets run over. Right yeah. Yeah, it's very very lucky. Uh, I'll just not go anywhere. There's a cameraman, to be honest, and that's where all the bad stuff happens. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that 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 era, that uh, attitude era from like '97 yeah, yeah, that, through 2002. I, I got really into it. That was also a big. That was a big shift in wrestling too. We're going to lose all your audience. They're probably gone by now. Um, but um, that, that was a big shift where it really went from being something that was marketed towards kids to something that was marketed yeah. towards yeah late teens to. Well, that that sixteen to thirty-five male demographic uh, mm-hmm. was really—that's what changed in that period. So you started seeing more more girls not wearing much and more swearing and more aggressive and and more blood and yeah. stuff that made young men go, "Yeah, I want to watch that." Um, that was that was pretty much the shift. And then and then and then eventually uh, they started to figure out that actually kids are a better, more lucrative market, just like every other martial artist has figured out. Yeah. <laughs> you need to, you need to appeal to the kids. <laughs> Tone it back down and get mum and dad to buy the action figures. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a journey. But no, I, I, Sue, Sue, I am very impressed with your uh, with your diligence and also that you were able to sort of see it through a different lens. There's um yeah. Greg, what what else did you show did you did you send Sue? I just want to see whether I've got recommendations. Um well, I sent the, the TLC, but I realised yeah. after Sue Sue messaged me back saying, "Oh, the Spanish commentary is hilarious," and I was like, "Oh, you didn't get the <laughs> best part. You didn't get Jr. Uh, yeah. ballistic on the commentary." Oh, God. Yeah. I was just, just impressed with the whole kind of, <laughs> and I'm listening to it. So I don't actually need to know what you're saying to know what you're saying. You're going to go, "Oh my gosh, he's fallen off the ladder. Is he okay? Yeah. Oh my God, now they're coming with the tape. I can." I know that that's what <laughs> yeah. he's saying. So what was the other one you said? The other one I um, said was... Um, Undertaker and Triple H. Yes, oh, Hell really? in the Cell. Yeah. Hell in the Cell. Match, cell. Right? So yeah. you got, you've gone straight to the gimmick matches. Yeah. You, yes, you, uh, you, well, yeah. you needed to show me what was what was like obvious. And as soon as the... Um, which one was it? The Undertaker took his hood off and he kind of did this big wide-eyed thing, thing yeah, with yeah. The, the huge amounts of eyeliner on. I was like, yeah, got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Also this thought is, this... I can see a future career for myself right here. This is. This is... <laughs> There's a certain level of silliness you have to sort of just accept and go, you know what? I'm, I'm here. I've bought the ticket. I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, whenever I'm trying to show someone who's not a fan, uh, it, dep- I, it depends what they're into. Like if I've got someone who's really into theater, uh, there, there are some stuff you can show you like, yeah, you know, watch how these guys manipulate an manipulate an audience and draw emotion and do that stuff. And like, you find some people that have great facial expressions, like um, like a William Regal from um from Blackpool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Regal's the best. Like his his facial expressions are amazing, right? And he can do comedy and he can do he can do really heartfelt stuff and he can make you hate him and he can, he's so so good. Uh, and then if I if I know someone who's really into combat sports, there's a, there's a few guys. Actually, the UK product is really good for this. Got him uh, Tyler Bate, who's from. Dudley, I want to say, um, is he had a he had a match against a big Austrian guy named Walter, and uh, man, they just beat the living hell out of each other. But it was a great story because uh, yeah, they and, and you can't see through it because they're actually hitting each other. Yeah, <laughs> they they really are hitting each other, and um, yeah, and it, like I've I've spent a lot of time getting behind the scenes and reading all the books and listening to the podcasts and stuff, and and the the amount of injuries these guys sustain for the sake of creating a moment. 
that is entertaining. And I remember, um, yeah, uh, uh, Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, talking oh. about um, his matches with Vader. And Va- Vader is this. So he's uh, he's passed away now, but he was um, yeah, six foot five uh, and about three hundred eighty pounds. So whatever that works out to be, like about one hundred and sixty kilos or so. Uh, and uh, big American football player initially, and just built like a fridge. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and a really strong. Look, could do a backflip off the top rope. Like he was a really freak athlete, and he and his stuff was so stiff and so solid. And and um, Mick Foley writes in his book that he he knew that he could be a really sympathetic figure if he just let himself get absolutely beat up by this monster. So he basically just said to him, "Hit me as hard as you want. Just don't just don't break my nose or my teeth." <laughs> Pretty much like this is off limits. Uh, side of the face, head, whatever, do what you need to do. Like, let's, let's get me over. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll look like a killer. I'll look like an underdog who never gave up. And you're like, you're watching these matches and like, man, they're, they're really, they're really hitting each other. And it's completely consensual to, to elicit an emotion from the audience. You know, it's, um, that's, uh, it's not something you get in ballet. No. So, same no. level of cooperation. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah. And the the other thing, just to just to close on that, um, some of the older older matches, especially some of the some of the stuff of the the real high level workers of your your Ric Flair's and Ricky Steamboats in the eighties and, and yeah. earlier, is that they didn't plan much. Like they'd go into a sixty minute match and they would have like five or six things that they were going to do, like spots, like a sequence that would do during the match, and then everything else was just based on what the audience said. So like if you could feel like they they start they'd have like okay we're going to start off this way, and then we're just going to call it in the ring. Yeah, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do. You do what you do that, and then we just feed off the audience. The audience is okay. They're building. They're building. Okay, let's just keep them a little bit of build up. A little bit of build up. Oh, the heels. So the bad guy's going to take over now, and then and I'm going to work over the the baby face, the 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 good guy. And the baby face is going to sell it and make himself really sympathetic until the audience is really on edge and we're ready to cheer for him. And then he's going to start making his comeback, and the audience is going to pop. And now the heel's going to poke him in the eyes and take him back down, and we're going to build the heat a little bit more, right? And we're going to just get that audience back up again. And then we're going to have the baby face come back. And, oh, we're going to cut him off. Oh no, he's going to come back, right? And then then we just end. Then we go into our finish sequence, and you can do this and take the audience on a roller coaster for forty five minutes. And, and yeah, that, awesome. That's, that's incredible. That's the art. Yeah. That's yeah. The art wow. of, yeah. Yeah. So, the other, yeah. That's, that's so what the- I watch for now. Yeah, the other not, match not the is um, Rock and Austin WrestleMania 17 as well. That's a great match, yeah. Which is it's a, a very, a yeah. 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 Anyway, so there's there's a lot to it, but if you yeah you, you're right, like you need to look at it through the lens of cooperative, athletic storytelling. Yeah. With I'm, real I'm, with real injuries. Yeah, but I'm a huge skill. I was watching. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, all names have have gone yeah, now, no, but sorry. you know that the, you know someone's literally laying on the edge of the ring with his neck, just, must be perfectly positioned he must have got his neck absolutely right and the other guy comes and literally lands on him and it looks like he's about to break his neck the level of skill to be able to set that up yeah and do it so it looks impressive you're big lads yeah and actually not break the other guy's neck that's whoa yeah that's some that's some serious skill Mm. yeah yeah and it's all about that that moment of getting the audience to buy it just yeah. from, just through and, and it's so much harder now. Like in the in the 70s and the 80s, like the audience was still fairly uneducated and the style of wrestling wasn't so extravagant. So it was easier to believe it. 
that they were just two tough guys fighting each other. Uh, and then when they start doing silly stuff, like I've got to pour, I've got to somehow like make myself busy for 32 seconds while you set up a ladder and three tables. Uh, and I'm not going to fight you for that time while you set this stuff up. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's, you start to, mm. <laughs> I think if that stuff was going on, people would have seen through it a little bit earlier, but, um, but I think it became harder in the nineties when everyone started to learn that this is, this is not real. Now, how do you still get the emotion out of the audience when they know what they're seeing is a performance? And that's mm. um, that's even yeah, that's that's a different level again. So. Yeah, I think they lean anyway. into that now, don't they? I don't tend to watch yeah. too much modern stuff, but they kind of yeah, they kind and, of and into the fact that people know it's a performance. Well, I mean, even even now, like um, yeah, WWE doesn't do this, but the other company AEW does. Where they'll, they'll yeah. do like a they'll have a show. And they've got guys that are in a big feud with each other where they've been you know, fighting each other for weeks and it's, uh, they hate each other and it's a big blood feud and there's going to be this brutal, brutal match. And then after the show, immediately after, they'll do a press conference where they'll talk about how they work together to create these spots. And I'm like, oh, yeah. guys, you're kind of... Yeah. yeah. Like, you're kind of killing me a little bit here. Like, just keep some mystery. Yeah. <laughs> so let me go Let me go find that if I want to watch the podcast or if I want to read the book later on, not necessarily... Don't shove it in my face that this is all fake because you keep taking me out of the moment. Mm. Anyway, yeah, you're right. The, the press conference needs to be part of the performance piece, doesn't it? I, yeah, and it always used to be like, and, and, and I think WWE still mostly does it. They keep the guys kind of half in character, like plausibly yeah. in character. Um, and that's why people like The Undertaker didn't do press conferences. Like for, for years, he never did an interview. Yeah. Because he was supposed to be an undead zombie. So, like, he's not going to show up and do media. <laughs> it's, it's just <laughs> like. It's, until he uh, until he changed to the biker, then he then he would yeah. talk all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why it was so weird. I, like I'd, I'd grown growing up with this guy. Like literally, I started watching wrestling in 1990. He debuted at uh, Survivor Series 90. So I mean, like basically, yeah. my entire fandom. He was a real. He was a he was a main player the entire time, up until he retired. Whatever it was last year, year before. Yeah. And then he started doing this media tour, and I realized I've been listening to this guy do like promos in the ring and talk to his fans and like, 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 like sell the story. And then he did these, this media interview. And I'm like, that's his voice. I've never heard the guy's real voice. Like, it's, just a, like, it's always rest. So, and all of a sudden he's like, he's just a normal guy from Texas. Yeah. And it's like, wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, I assume I, like logically I knew he didn't sound like that all the time, but like, anyway. Yeah. The documentary they did things. about him, his retirement was really good. If you haven't yeah. seen it, it's it's oh, it's yeah. worth watching. And like the other thing I think that people miss when they say oh, it's all fake is that they don't understand that they really are falling and they really are landing and it's not a trampoline. Like that that ring yeah. is legitimately wood and uh, and basically a gymnastic mat on top. And sometimes there's a spring underneath it, but it still really bloody hurts. And especially when you're a big guy like them or me. Um, and like you, you talk about, uh, you know, I think when Undertaker was on the Joe Rogan podcast, he talked about how he'd been, uh, he, he, uh, had a really big guy, Mabel do a leg drop on his mm. face and it, and it, and it um, he, he thought he, he broke might his have orbital had, or something, didn't yeah, he? he broke his orbital bone. He, he knew he was swollen up. He had a black eye and he thought he had, he, he wrestled for another couple of nights with it. And then it was only because, uh, he happened to be driving through a part of, t- a part of this, a city where he knew. And he's like, this really isn't getting any better. I should go get it checked out. And he'd actually not just broken his orbital bone, but his optical nerve was sitting on a shard of bone. And they're like, if you'd taken one more 
like solid jolt to the head, there's a good chance you would have actually lost your eye. Um, and that was just like normal. They, just, they worked through that stuff uh, because not so much now that like now they have proper health insurance and doctors and stuff yeah. that pull through those kinds of injuries. But back in the day, like everyone was a contractor and if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And if you had to take a year off, there's a good chance someone else was going to be in your spot by the time you came back. So yeah, there's a, uh, which is also why a lot of them died young because they dealt, yeah. dealt with the pain through booze and pain pills and whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk, this is the first pro wrestling podcast I've ever done. So uh, good for you guys. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's, let's finish it with your Mount Rushmore right. wrestlers. Oh, such an unfair question. I'm going to ask you uh, first and then I'll, okay. I'll try and go after. <sighs> okay. Um, I'm just going to go with with my favorites, I think, because uh, if I if I try and quantify it by my Mount Rushmore of the best in ring guys versus the best promo guys versus the best like this style guys, whatever it's, it's would be here forever. My my top four uh, from my from my fandom uh, number one is Bret Hart because mm-hmm. Bret was a guy that I got into when I was a kid, and then I still appreciate his work when I was a teenager. And now as an adult, I can go back and watch his work and appreciate the artistry of what he did. So he he's a guy that whose work absolutely stands up through every era of my fandom. Um, I have to say Hulk Hogan, not because I particularly like watching any of his stuff now, but because he was literally my superhero when I was growing up. Mm. Uh, and uh, the fact that I got to have a Twitter exchange with Hulk Hogan when I was like 34 still made my life. <laughs> <laughs> so... Even though I'm like he's a flawed human being and he's just an old guy living off past glory now, the fact that he replied to my tweet just made my day. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So there's still that, uh, still that 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 inner that inner six year old was just like I can't believe Hulk Hogan just like replied to me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, but um, uh, I'll say I'll say Shawn Michaels in there as well for pretty much the same reasons as Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I don't think he's as good as Brett, and in, in, well, that's that's a controversial statement for anyone who knows. But anyway, uh, and who would go fourth? Oh, okay, I've got to, I've got to do a tie. Fourth would fourth would either be uh, Vader, who I mentioned earlier, because I just loved his style, uh, or it would be uh, Toshiaki Kawada from Japan, because uh, he had a very very stiff, heavy hitting style, and he was the first one I really watched in Japan that did that. I'm, I, I can't believe these guys aren't actually dying uh, kind of style, uh, which turns out was super dangerous and some of them did die. But that's yeah. <laughs> at the time I was like, this is incredible. These guys are for real. So, yeah, um, I think so. I, I, I'd probably argue with myself on that for, for many hours, but I'll just stick to that. <laughs> nice. What, nice. About you, what about you, Greg? Oh, uh, I would have definitely The Undertaker would have to be in there. Um, just because he he managed to last 30 years with, let's be honest, a ridiculous gimmick. Yeah. That no, no one else, no one else could have ever pulled off. No one else can pretend to be undead for 30 years and have yeah, still exactly. believing it. Yeah. <laughs> still, yeah. Still buying it. Yeah. And he had a phase where he rode a bike for a while, but he was still the majority of the time he was a. Yeah. Just like, you know what? I'm just, just going to be a biker because I want to be. Yeah, I remember who he actually, really was. When that happened, my, my I remember playing the the first PlayStation game 
of SmackDown. <laughs> and the Undertaker was on it, and he was this demonic. It was the Ministry of Darkness Undertaker. Yeah, yeah, yep. And then I remember when he came back and he came on the bike, I was like, who's this? This isn't the Undertaker. What's happening here? <laughs> um, so yeah, Undertaker would be on there. Um, Chris Jericho would probably be on there. He's another guy who's been around for like 30 yeah, he's been, years. And now. he's still going and he's still, he can still. He can still work. do it. Yeah. 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 Chris Jericho, the rock, just because he was like my Hulk Hogan when I was a kid. I guess yeah, I I have to admit, like if 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 I ever got a like a, a direct message from Dwayne Johnson, that'd probably supersede the the Hulk reference for me, just because I have so much more respect for him as a human and what he's done now, as opposed to just being a, a, a pivotal figure in my childhood. But, yeah, mm. yeah. And one more. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe but, but, yeah, probably Steve Austin. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You can't you can't watch during that era and not be a massive Steve Austin fan. No. Uh, yeah. There you go. No, it's there it's it's interesting, huh? It's uh but you know, it's, it's so it's so typical if you look at our two lists. Like it it, it very much indicates where we were in terms of age. Say. Yeah. Like you like you're you're about five years ahead of me. Like all all my people were like peaked in the in the early to mid nineties and all yours were like late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. So it's like it's it's interesting like that. Again, it's like comics when you're a kid. Like you, you grow up and you like what you like, and new stuff is met with resistance. Yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, you know, we we could probably draw a parallel to martial arts there too. <laughs> yeah, for so, sure, yeah, absolutely. You like what you like. You like what you start with. You've always got to bias back to it. And, you know, I I always bias back to wrestling sports, whether it's judo or jiu-jitsu or BJJ or whatever. Like I like the grappling because that was the first thing I was ever really good at. Yeah, uh, and even though I learned other stuff, that's still that's still my thing because it's 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 the first thing that gave me camaraderie and achievement and the the sense that I could actually be good at something. And uh, yeah, so I think I think that's we we all anchor to something, and uh, it's that's not a bad thing. Anything that yeah. makes you a good human, right? So <laughs> that's probably the probably the 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 episode title. Whatever makes you a good human. Yeah, well, I, I've got a few few options. That's definitely one of them. The other one is what if. What if, yeah? What if is nice? Um, yeah, we'll see. What if plus wrestling tangent? Maybe we need to put the wrestling behind a paywall or something. If you want to hear these guys talk for 45 minutes about wrestling, <laughs> go, go to this one. Yeah. And Sue, and Sue very politely just sort of sit there and let us let us just talk to each other. That's all right. No, we'll no, get... I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting interested now. Like I say, I can see nice. a future career for myself. Um, I can okay. I can wear a shed load of makeup and uh, where I already have uh, like big messy hair. So I can wear lycra and uh, be an absolute bitch for money. Yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most people do it without getting paid. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> Okay, cool. So uh, let's uh, let's just just finish up by just uh, checking in. Where can people find your work, your stuff? Um, just go ahead, give us your website. Yeah, for, for for the three of you that are still listening after the forty five minutes of wrestling talk. <laughs> uh, so if you, if you've tuned in at the end, uh, if if you want to want to learn more about uh, anything I do, um, so if you can go to uh, my podcast, the Managing Violence Podcast, it's currently at violencepod.com. Um, we'll probably have a new URL soon, but that one will stay current for a while. So violencepod.com, as I said, there we got new episodes coming out as of mid-December. So probably by the time you listen to this, they'll be uh, they'll be close by. So we've got that coming up. Uh, if you are interested in what we do in terms of consulting work and the the workplace violence work that we do 
predominantly in Australia, but we do do some stuff internationally. We have partners internationally as well. So if it's of interest to you, then uh, you can go to www.risk2solution.com. So it's risk2solution.com and uh, just use the menus to get to violence prevention and you'll find out more about that. Uh, and other than that, pretty much on all the social media stuff that you'd expect to find me, either just search for Managing Violence or Joe Saunders. Actually, if you search for Joe Saunders, you tend to get Billy Joe Saunders. That bastard has really stolen my name. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real bugbear too because because he's a boxer. Like even our, even our search terms overlap sometimes, which is annoying. So uh, <laughs> have considered have considered having to change my name, but I think it's, I'm too far down the path now. So I'm yeah. just kind of hoping that something happens that just eliminates him and I get to just take over. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, Managing Violence podcast or Joe Saunders, you'll usually find me if you dig hard enough. Thank you. Awesome. We'll put links yeah. to all of the stuff in the description so we people will. can just click to go straight to your stuff anyway. Yeah. 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 And look, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping fingers crossed might be back in the UK in May. Uh, that's not, not by any stretch confirmed yet. Um, but uh, I am trying to get back across to, to attend a conference there. And if I can do that, I'll try and tee up a, a seminar tour at the same time. So awesome. just, Brilliant. just fingers crossed. If, if you're in, if you're interested in hosting anything, just reach out to me and I'll keep you in the loop. Brilliant. Sweet. There Thank we go. You. Cool. Well, as always, right. amazing to talk to you. Thank you, Joe. For yeah, thanks time. for coming back on. Absolute pleasure. As I said, first time I've ever spoken about kids getting stabbed in pro wrestling in the same conversation. So yeah, it's been a yeah. it's been a deep dive. And 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 in cities of the future as well, just to just to bring us all the way back around to where we started. Ooh. That's I meant to mention this. Speaking about cities of the future, have you seen the concept for the line? Oh, is this the one where it's like um, all high rises, sort of like built in a row? Is that the one? Yeah, in yeah. is it in Dubai or somewhere? Not Dubai, but yeah, somewhere yeah, near Dubai. Yeah, outstanding. Yeah, like a, a vertical, vertical cities. I think. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's actually part of what sort of inspired those original thoughts. Is that yeah, on the surface it seems absurd, and then you're like, well, we're gonna have to do something different. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, if we're if we're if we're going to start experimenting with all sorts of different ways of living and like even just like the structural challenges, of, I'm sorry, I know you're doing a wrap up and now I've just gone on a tangent, but that's my uh, life. The, Carry on. The, the structural challenges of like how how do you irrigate like the um all the greenery that is growing two three hundred meters in the air? Like, yeah. How does that work? Where does the water pressure come from? How do you manipulate water pressure out of the ground to travel that far? Like all these, I don't know. I'm not an engineer. Maybe it's easy, but like all those kinds of things made me think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of for us to explore as a humanity over the next 50 to 100 years. Oh, and yeah. uh, and I think probably improving our safety and security should be one of the top of the list. So and not, and not just for people that can afford to live in nice areas. Mm. Oh, God, no, absolutely. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah 100%. There you go. That's, that's, that's my closing thought. Thank you. Nice. Thank you for that. Awesome. Right, <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Again, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, as always. Yes. Until Thank next time. Daniel. Yeah, next time. Absolutely. A couple more months and we'll have you on again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we can unpack any one of our many tangents for a yeah. more episodes. Love it. Love it. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Joe.